Trap one to all stations. Treat. Order imperative. Immediate retreat. Hello and a very warm welcome to the Trap One Podcast. I'm Mark. I'm Ruth. I'm Jason. Last time we all talked about the end of the 11th Doctor era when we discussed the 50th anniversary Steelbook collection and now we're going to continue into the beginning of the 12th Doctor's tenure to mark the release of Series 8 in Steelbook form. Uh, Ruth, this is your favourite series, I understand? Yes, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely by far uh, my favourite series of Doctor Who um, for a lot of reasons. I mean, it was, it was the kind of series that I, I, I jumped back on board with the show you know in a, in a more uh, kind of committed manner than when I watched the tenant era uh, with series 7b um, but it was really kind of after the 50th and everything from that that momentum um, as we talked about last time and and just you know the new doctor and the way it really invigorate reinvigorated Clara's character and I, I think for me I just I just absolutely adore uh how character focused it is and how it's it shows a very kind of complex and messy uh pair of leads and a messy relationship and and that just really enthralled me and uh to this day i think because of that uh it's just remained my favorite series yeah you do get a sense that you know now that clara has been like released from the whole impossible girl plot uh, that we had for series 7b that she like really comes into her own now as a character doesn't she mm-hmm. yeah and there's uh there's just so much uh meaty and and i think really complex uh stuff that they go into that i don't think the show's really at least in the new series has really gone into before or since uh kind of look at the more sort of toxic elements of of life with the doctor and you know there's a whole lot of stuff to get into obviously as we go through each story um but the overall kind of uh, cohesion of it i think character wise is just really interesting and and it it ties together so well uh you know as its own self-contained sort of storyline definitely where does series eight rank for you jason uh, I'd certainly say it, it's up there. Um, the whole Capaldi era is is an absolute joy, and um, I'm actually going to continue. Obviously, watching season uh, nine and ten as well. I think uh, now that I've finished series eight, just because I'm I've just forgotten how good Capaldi was. Um, mm-hmm. I remember at the time that this was broadcast, though, uh, I thought it was inspired casting, but. I do remember it did take me a long time to actually like really accept him in the role. And I think part of that was because I was missing Matt Smith quite a lot. And, and I did feel that Matt Smith, uh, like we discussed in the last podcast about the 50th anniversary box set, that he kind of like went before he should have gone. Um, but so like from, from deep breath onwards, he, you know, he, he absolutely inherits the role but it was only really when I when you get to like mummy on the Orient Express flat line that he really really clicked for me but it was an absolute joy to revisit this series and I suppose um in a way that's kind of 
the intention, really, because his doctor is finding himself as well throughout most of the series. So just as we, the audience, and and Clara, you know, take a while to really find out what this doctor's deal is, you know, it's the same sort of thing that the doctor himself is discovering himself. Um, and I, I agree with you. I think Mummy on the Orient Express is where that comes together and where you really feel what his doctor's for and his unique kind of flair uh, as the doctor. Yeah, because you've got the whole main plot of, like, am I a good man, which runs through the whole of the mm-hmm. series and, you know, culminates in the huge speech that he gives in the, the series finale. Yeah, and I'm the same as you, Jason. I'm going to carry on through 9 and 10 now. Um, <laughs> and the, I, I love the Capaldi series. He's my favourite of the modern Doctors. Mm-hmm. I can never quite decide which of his series is my favourite, and it's usually the one I've watched most recently. So <laughs> it is series <laughs> 8 at the moment, because I, I, I've watched it in such a truncated time period, um, getting mm-hmm. ready for this podcast this time. So, um, yeah, I'm at the moment thinking, yeah, this this is the best one, but I'm sure I'll feel the same after <laughs> after revisiting series nine. Yeah. And, and I think um, to, to move on to deep breath as well. What what we're saying there about you know the doctor finding himself is it's not really made a big deal of, but he's just spent two thousand years on Trenzor, so he, there is an element of refinding himself as a as a traveller, um, you know, as the kind of wanderer, not just staying in one place uh, and defending. Uh, you know, defending the the people of Trenzalore. He can't readily remember how to fly the the TARDIS. You know, it's he's kind of virtually half mm-hmm. his life. He's been stuck in the one place there, and especially when he's he's, he's got that post regeneration sort of fuzziness, and he he confuses Clara for handles and can't really remember the Paternoster gang. Um, it's quite un- understandable, I think, because he, from his point of view, hasn't seen them for such a long time. Yeah, and um, I, I absolutely love the way that episode starts off because you really feel this kind of sense of uncertainty. You know, when he when the the Paternosters open the TARDIS door and he comes out, and everything feels kind of really kind of scary and new. Uh, I think more in a way that, uh, than previous Doctor Regeneration stories because you know with with Tennant. And uh, well, Tennant was obviously asleep for a lot of his story, um, but you know, you still had that kind of uh, I don't know excitement and fun, and and I don't know, you, you had you, you sympathised with Rose, obviously, um, but I think there was something about Capaldi's Doctor um, and the way you just didn't quite get what his deal was and you didn't quite know where he was going to land throughout the story. Like, you, you constantly keep having this doubt in the back of your mind of what is he going to abandon Clara? Is he, you know, this kind of darker, more uh, kind of pragmatic, um, <laughs> cold Doctor? Uh, which obviously he doesn't turn out to be in the grand scheme, but that's very much the angle they start off with. And I think that's really interesting um and that real uncertainty that you feel and you really feel clara's journey in that respect yeah i mean it's interesting what you touched upon there i always feel that the the series a is effectively what they try to do in the classic series with colin baker's sixth doctor but they went completely down the wrong angle and they tried to, obviously the plan was to stretch it out by several years. You know, having him strangle Perry was completely the move. He like disliked the doctor from the offset. But I've always said that Moffat and like looked at that and whether he did it with um, like an agreement with Capaldi or not, they kind of like do the six doctor arc, but right and proper. Mm-hmm. You are wrong-footed a little bit. And I remember there was, 
there was quite a lot of um, a, a t- some backlash in fandom when he was cast. Certainly, I think from the fans of the new series who were probably used to David Tennant, used mm-hmm. to Matt Smith, and there was a bit of ageism towards Peter Capaldi, I think. So I think they kind of like took that on board and I think that's why the Matt Smith scene at the end of Deep Breath is in there because it's not only there to reassure Clara that I'm the same man and stick with me because I'm going to struggle because of obviously I've been on Trevor's Law for 2,000 years mm-hmm. but it's also there to reassure the audience as well in a way that we've never really seen it done before yeah and um i think that's a really interesting point actually um especially kind of going into clara a bit um in that i've seen people say before that um you know her her being so kind of thrown off by this doctor doesn't make any sense because she's met all of the doctors and she's she knows about regeneration and everything but i do think there's there's very much a difference between knowing a concept and actually living through it especially when the the transition not just in terms of appearance or age, but like personality, at least on the surface, between you know going from eleven to twelve, it's a very dramatic shift, and he is suddenly very distant, and she doesn't quite. And and I think the scene that really, and I think the scene that really uh, hits in terms of Clara's character suddenly really kind of coming into her own. I mean, I, I loved her in series seven, um, and I loved her in the specials, but in terms of her really kind of standing out and and. Becoming Becoming a more interesting and complex character, um, although I, I'd argue she's always been interesting, but <laughs> for a lot of people, um, and understandably so, is the scene with Vastra uh, about the veil. Um, and that's like you said, it's kind of a great way of walking the audience through the change. Um, but I also think the key difference here is that Clara isn't quite, she isn't just a t- two dimensional audience surrogate, obviously, uh, because. The, the kind of entire point of that scene is that Clara refutes Vastra's point because she kind of, Vastra kind of reduces it to, oh, you, you had a crush on this pretty young man and now he's old so you don't like him. And she obviously shuts that down with quite an impressive kind of little speech. Um, and uh, I, I, I think that scene is so interesting because it really uh, distinguishes her character. Um, the way she just... <laughs> kind of loses it um, and says, you know, I've never had the slightest interest in pretty young men. Uh, and for the record, if anyone could feel like with the mountain range, you'd probably start standing in front of you right now. Um, just because my pretty face has turned your head, do not assume I'm so easily distracted. Like, I mean, I, I can quote word for word because it's such a, a fun uh, and exciting scene. Um, and I love the way they just continue to develop uh, that tension with her character and that complexity. Uh, and then you have that amazing scene in the restaurant as well, which is her first real scene against the 12th Doctor and our first real proper look at the Doctor, I suppose, um, because before you have all that regeneration kind of craziness going on. So that's when he's calmed down a bit and you, you get him more in his more kind of serious uh, eye on the mystery kind of mindset. And that's that for me, uh, that restaurant scene is hands down one of my absolute top 10 uh, Doctor Companion scenes because it's so good the tension the kind of slow build up uh, the kind of bickering uh, it's really really good it's brilliant I, I say it's the first uh, proper scene with Capaldi as a Doctor and, and those two are great together and also what's going on around them it's like that sort of Stephen Moffat like playing with the conventions of TV thing it's a bit like in the Silence of the Library where 
the normal cuts between scenes, which which we normally see, it turns out that is actually how Donna's experience in her life. Um, in this, you just they're just extras who are just going through the mm-hmm. motions of uh, of eating in a restaurant, and that is part of the story. Um, it's it's another really lovely, neat sort of uh, Moffat thing, mm-hmm. isn't it? There's a clever sleight of hand there, isn't there? And I think that's a testament to like Ben Wheatley, who's who's a great uh, independent film director, who they got to do the first um, two episodes, didn't they, of the series, which mm-hmm. I think quite a coup for the series. Yeah. Uh, because at first you don't notice it, um, because you don't notice that the extras are just kind of like pretending to go through the motions. But again, Moffat makes a story point of it, and it's the first thing that I noticed when I was rewatching this episode. Mm-hmm. Day, is that you do notice that the extras are doing the clockwork motions and it's almost as if that's there to reward you on subsequent viewings yeah he's always been very good at that um and another thing i really like about that um is not only are you really invested in the kind of banter so you don't really notice it at first viewing you also the characters especially Cara she's too fixated on the doctor calling her an egomaniac <laughs> you know to, to notice and there's all of that kind of bantering and back and forth over who placed the impossible girl newspaper ad and things like that uh, and then Capaldi has a great line saying you know that it's a vanity trap you're too busy congratulating yourself on solving the puzzle uh, without realizing there's a noose around your neck uh, there's so many good good lines from him in this episode like that and there's because uh, I think the thing you talk, talk about Capaldi's character as the doctor is he's, he's much more like the first four doctors for me um there's uh, you know, it's kind of later on in the series, especially in Into the Dalek, but the that sort of dispassionate nature and and the slight aloofness is um, the bit in Into the Dalek when he when they're in the the sort of the goo chamber and he says that you know the top layer is that person and you can say a few words really reminds me of Pyramids of Mars when um, <laughs> the guys died and Sarah Jane says sometimes you don't see him and he goes human and uh, it, it's just that thing of, it's just that reminder that he isn't human. Um, and I think the way he's uh, he's much more sort of stripped back costume as well, and we don't get that traditional costume choosing scene that we normally get for a, a new Doctor. He's just he just appears at the end in his new costume. Um, there was an interview at the time he did with the Empire Movie Magazine, um, and he said it can become kind of a franchise where it's not a real character at all, but an amalgam of elements that people think a Doctor Who a scarf, a bow tie. I want to be the actual Doctor Who, um, and I think that really speaks to how he plays it, and and it's it's um, goes back to sort of a way of dressing instead of a costume, um, which I prefer. Mine isn't there, like into the Dali, like you said, uh, where he goes, Clara is my, and she says Kara, and he's like, yeah, she cares, so I don't have to, and I think that's a very kind of like fourth Doctorish kind of line, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <clears throat> And um, I suppose uh, another thing that I really, uh, you, you touched on a bit with the droids. Uh, one thing I absolutely, it's absolutely genius, I think, uh, the, the the monsters of this episode. Uh, the way that they, I, I mean, the clockwork droids have always been one of my absolute favourites. Uh, they, they were the ones that, they were the one monster that scared me more than any other uh, back when Girl in the Fireplace got. I think it was something about the masks and the movements that just really freaked me out when I was younger. Um but here, that I love that they evolved that. You know, not only do they steal uh, human body parts for for machine for 
functioning of their their ship but they're now using it to literally clothe themselves uh and disguise themselves using kind of like their frankenstein's monsters basically um and i i think that's so thematically fitting for for this story and for this doctor uh, you have that really cool scene uh where Twelve is confronting the half-faced man, who is one of my absolute favourite one-off kind of villain characters. Um, and uh, you know, he gets to the whole ship of Theseus kind of argument. Uh, if you have a broom and you you change all the handle and then uh, change the the end and keep changing them, uh, is it the same broom? And you have that amazing shot where he holds up uh, the dinner plate, the silver plate, and uh, showing the half-faced man his reflection. And obviously, you see his own reflection back at him. Um, I just think that whole episode is so good at, at really tackling those questions uh, and really introducing them uh, and, and using them as a kind of to facilitate this doctor's uh, introduction and journey um, using everything from uh, kind of the grungy Victorian setting uh to having familiar characters like the Paternosters to contrast this Doctor because, you know, we're so used to seeing those characters with Matt Smith. So they work so well as like a kind of transition. Um, and then obviously the kind of using Clara as like the big audience surrogate, but also using it to give her a real kind of new direction uh, as a character. So it just feels very fresh and it feels like a real evolution of, of previous elements from the series, obviously, particularly the Smith era. It's like um, I was watching some of the extras as well on the uh, the existing Blu-ray set, which I'm going to obviously trade in once my Steelbook arrives. And um, Stephen Moffat says that one of the things that you have to do with a new Doctor and a season opener is to reassure the audience that they're still watching the same show. So it's kind of like, it's interesting that he chose to do like a semi-sequel to Girl in the Fireplace, which was quite an acclaimed episode, and one that people remember but he, he does a clever twist with it doesn't he because the doctor has it on like on the tip of his tongue going you know i think i've seen this somewhere <laughs> no not getting it at all you know and i think that's a nice touch because there was that temptation for the doctor to always know everything you know every time but when you obviously think back to that previous episode he never knew what the name of the ship was when they left you know so therefore he's not going to make that connection when he sees that this is the uh, ss um, marie antoinette mm-hmm. you know, so i thought that was a very very clever twist on doing a, a sequel to an, an existing story to also then reassure the audience that you're still watching doctor who I'm pretty sure as well he's sniffing a bunch of roses when he comments on that, which is another great little kind of nod. Ah, yeah. The thing I noticed this time, which I hadn't noticed in previous ones, is when the, it's really macabre, isn't it? The um, the balloon that's made out of human skin uh, <laughs> inflates um, in like a sort of uh, grotesque version of Up. And the the, the 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 pod lifts out. They go past St Paul's Cathedral, um, which is obviously is the location of the Promised Land, which is what the Clockwork Man's mm-hmm. looking for. Um, never never noticed that before, but um, that was a nice a nice touch as well. Yeah, and and that's a. I also think um, obviously Doctor Who has always been very uh, kind of. It has its real dark moments. I mean, you think about um, episodes like The Waters of Mars um, or, you know, any number of, of uh, Moffat episodes, really. They, they teach us to really dig out the the concepts that are just 
that just really freak you out. Um, but I, I really do like how he uses that horror element in this episode. And obviously Ben Wheatley really uh, kind of helps with that, with his direction. But um, I, I really like the way uh, we have that whole question as well, uh, of see, that image of seeing the half-faced man impaled on, I think it's Big Ben, the top of Big Ben, is it? Or uh, it's one of the landmarks. Um, and, and then you have that question of, uh, did did the doctor push him or did the half-faced man jump? Um, and obviously Missy nods to that at the end. Um, but I, I think uh, kind of the... I like how they introduced that dilemma, but at the same time, um, the answer isn't really the the important thing. It's it's more about uh, us just not quite knowing with this doctor, I think, um, and that's what makes him so kind of interesting as a hook. Um, but then, obviously, they kind of peel back the layers as the episodes go on, and we really get to know uh, that the doctor has always been the doctor, even if he's a bit more rough around the edges, you know, this time around. I like with that bit is the way he breaks the fourth wall and he, he sort of almost challenges you, like looks mm-hmm. at the camera in almost a challenging way, doesn't he? Um, and obviously um, these two episodes kind of feed into each other, don't they? Because they've got the same director. I mean, really, uh, uh, from the doctor's point of view, he's just gone to get the coffee uh, that him and Clara were supposed to have at the end, uh, which itself was a nice nod to uh, the end of the world, I think it was, uh, when Christopher Eccleston and Rose go off uh, to get chips. Uh, but obviously the Doctor uh, gets distracted and ends up uh, running into Journey Blue. And then uh, by the time he, he brings the coffee back to Clara, like three weeks have passed and she's, <laughs> she was left in the middle of Glasgow on her own. Um, something I, I want to kind of point out before we carry on as an aside uh, like, Clara must have had such a bad Christmas day because, like, <laughs> She she woke up, uh, try, you know, in the time of the Doctor, and then all of the stuff going in and out of trends all happens, the Doctor regenerates, then all of Deep Breath happens, and then she gets stranded in Glasgow. And that's in, like, one day for her, which I find pretty hilarious, or, like, two days. Um, but anyway, so, yeah, uh, these episodes really kind of complement and feed into each other. So so what were your guys' feelings on, on this episode? Just as an aside there as well, there are actually police boxes dotted around the centre of Glasgow, so that might have, uh, she might have spent a little bit of time <laughs> going and trying a few of those as well. <laughs> That's a great image. Is where there's still a few left, isn't there? Yeah, I, this is another one that I, I absolutely love. Um, one of the things that I noticed this time, I think, it, it feels quite Star Wars influenced, like visually. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the ship being kind of run down by the Dalek saucer at the start, it's, it's almost like the opening shot of the original Star Wars. Mm-hmm. The uh, the protein chamber is a bit like the kind of the garbage compactor from from the first film, and and the ship hiding in the asteroid field, uh, and then the kind of the troops anxiously waiting to be boarded. Um, all just felt like it was slightly Star Wars influenced, particularly the um, the original Star Wars film. Yeah, I mean it's a cracking script from Phil Ford, and obviously you know Stephen Moffat's names on on there as well. So I don't know whether how who contributed to what, but yeah, I thought. Um, Similar to you, there's a proper like science fiction vibe to it, and I thought it harkened back to the old Dalek strips from TV Twenty One uh, that constantly get reprinted every couple of years. You know, because you've got the proper Dalek saucer, you know, like you say, chasing down a traditional retro-looking rocket ship, um, 
and yeah, it's that whole kind of like adventure in space. But um, again, it's a clever twist that's done on it because um, with the Doctor's attitude, and this is like where we start to see another subplot that's fed through um, the series is his distrust and not liking of soldiers, which is quite different from how he's reacted to them in previous incarnations. And again, you're kind of like thinking, is that a deliberate nod to how long he's spent on Trenzalore? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think uh, obviously you have uh, Danny Pink's character, who's very much, uh, part of him being a soldier is to kind of contrast and offer that conflict. Um, But yeah, I I totally agree with you. I think it's 100% uh, intentional decision based on, I think not just uh, the Trenzler up, but also uh, the fact that we're fresh off uh, kind of the War Doctor and, um, you know, the Day of the Doctor. Um, Because that, that, and obviously that kind of thing is what leads to the war on Trenzalore. Uh, it was that, the events of the Day of the Doctor. Um, so I definitely think if you've spent 900 years fighting a war, you're going to be tired of it, aren't you? You're going to... Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think... I know a lot of people criticise uh, that story arc um, with the Twelfth Doctor in this series, and I do understand. Um, but I, I also think... Uh, I also understand why they went that route and I think it does have a really uh, kind of meaningful resolution and it very much ties in with the Doctor's kind of self-hatred, I suppose, in the series uh, because he is like the ultimate soldier, isn't he? The ultimate warrior. Um, So a lot of that is kind of self-inflicted kind of hatred that he's kind of projecting out onto other people, I guess. Um, and the Daleks obviously used as like the big symbol of that in this episode, uh, the whole question of whether a Dalek can be good. Um, and then you have that, that bit where he thinks he's cracked it. He thinks he's done it. Uh, but all the Dalek sees is the hatred in him for the Daleks. Um, and then that ends up uh, kind of backfiring, but also saving them in the end. But he really sees that as a failure. Um, but actually it feeds into that larger question of uh, what makes a good man and how is the doctor a good man? And uh, you have that line with Clara, don't you? Where she's like, um, I don't know if you're a good man, but you tried to be. And I think that's the point. Yeah. The conversation between uh, both doctor and Rusty is very, very similar to the conversation uh, or the, the monologue that Davros comes out with in the stolen earth, isn't it? Or is it journey's end? It's, it's that, uh, season four finale, isn't it? Where he kind of like criticizes the doctor for like not never getting his hands dirty and always u- using somebody else to fight his battles and, and do the dirty work. And there's kind of like a, a continuation of that, isn't there? With with Rusty saying that, you know, well, you know, you are ultimately you're a better Dalek than what I am because, you know, you've done all this in the in the past. You know, and, and so I'm going to take your inspiration, and I'm going to continue to be a good Dalek as well. Mm-hmm. And not then see like Rusty in the very last Capaldi uh, episode, don't we? You know, when mm-hmm. he's back. Yeah, and um, I think. Uh it, it makes so much sense, really, in that light to bring Rusty back, especially because I think the Doctor you see in Twice Upon a Time and the Doctor you see in this episode are very different because he's had so much growth over the course of Series 8, 9, and 10. Uh, so it works really well as a nice kind of contrast because uh, obviously his Doctor in this episode is probably at his most 
brutal. Uh, like you said, with the top layer, if you want to say a few words, uh, the way he just kind of casually sacrifices that soldier because he's already dead. So we might as well use it to get information. Uh, there's that real kind of cold pragmatism um, uh, that obviously the characters around him are kind of appalled by. <laughs> uh, but um, I think... Um, I think I was going to say, uh, as well as uh, kind of being reminiscent of that that speech by Davros, uh, the big kind of parallel, obviously, is Dalek uh, with Christopher Eccleston, because uh, it's kind of, I think it basically paraphrases the same line, because the Dalek in that episode also says uh, to the Doctor, you're a good Dalek, or you would make a good Dalek. Um, so obviously those two episodes are very much supposed to be kind of parallels, or, or in, you know, they're supposed to have that connection. Yeah, and it's it's the well, apart from at the end, it's the Saul Dalek thing, isn't it? The, the, the way that can be much more scary, really, and threatening if you've if you just got one Dalek to to play off. I think a thing um, again, looking at this time, there's a lot of like imagery around eyes in this one, isn't there? The way the mm-hmm. the the Dalek's eye stalk is the doorway for the the Doctor and his his um, allies sort of enter into the Dalek. The, yeah. the antibodies look like eyes. Um, Klaus Blau's uh, looks like mm-hmm. he's got sort of eyes um, uh, pattern on it, and then when the Doctor's making his impassioned speech to the the Dalek mutant, it's just like in front of this huge eye, and then mm. it feeds into the larger sort of themes of you know Klaus able to see what the Doctor isn't in mm-hmm. in you know what the this, this, what they've learned about um, this Dalek's experience. So it's so, yeah, like the windows to the soul type thing, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I know uh, Stephen Moffat's eras kind of Dalek stories get a lot of flag uh, that they're generally not seen as quite on the level of uh, the, the Rusty Davies era Dalek stories or, or the Chibnall era one but I think what I really like about his Dalek stories uh, or the ones during his era especially this episode and Asylum of the Daleks is that they're very they really delve into the psychology of Daleks and and how that relates to uh the Doctor's character and and indeed Clara's character in a way um, because she's been in a Dalek, what, three times yeah. <laughs> in different ways. Um, and um, I, I really like how, uh, like in Asylum of the Daleks, you have Oswin's character, which is really fascinating in how they play with that. Um, and and you kind of feel that connection to that story here with, with the whole concept of... Um, a good Dalek and the question of it and, and what, what, what would a Dalek look like if it was good? Um, and I, I really like that scene, uh, minus the slap, which I think was a bit unnecessary, uh, where Clara's kind of like, um, what did we learn? And she's very much been the teacher to the doctor. And you kind of have that subtle implication of doctor. There's an example of a good Dalek standing right in front of you. You met one, <laughs> Clara's voice. Um, I've always kind of enjoyed that subtle, kind of implication um and obviously uh they pay that off even more with uh the witch is familiar where they basically directly um kind of nod to it um but i really like clara's role in this uh, episode because uh she is very much the doctor's moral core but you also see her pick up things in this episode that she will then go on to uh mimic or or emulate in her own way uh in the later episodes for better and for worse um so i think it's a really interesting episode in kind of setting up the morality of the characters and the more gray morality um 
and and how in the doctor's world uh, sometimes you do have to make very cold and and heartless uh, pragmatic decisions in order to save people's lives even if it's very kind of uh, brutal on the surface the one thing I will say again is that it's a wonderfully directed episode. Um, the psychedelic sequences, like you mentioned, the the whole going into the Dalek uh, bit, are uh, something quite unique. Something that we don't really get in Doctor Who that often. Um, you know, so again, I think it pays off that you've got something like you know, with the talent of, of Ben Wheatley, you know, um, coming into the series. And it's a shame he couldn't come back and do another couple of episodes. Yeah, definitely, and I think the the, the Dalek sort of—they've never looked as good for me. The especially the the battle scenes—they um, mm. they're just stunningly directed in that, and and it's like one of the few times when they have a really rapid rate of fire as well. It's something that always used to annoy me is that they would fire <laughs> once and then shout for a while and then fire again. They're so much more threatening in this one, just by mm. um, yeah, just it's only a little thing, but just like, shooting really rapidly um, just makes them look more like a credible sort of you know, soldier or tank or whatever. Speaking of the Dalek scenes, this was famously the episode that um, Peter Capaldi came in on his couple of days off like he had, and actually came to the studio because he, he was that excited mm-hmm. to watch the Dalek <laughs> film. <laughs> that he was like, no, no, I want to come and see him. Yeah, I thought that was nice because obviously he's been a lifelong fan. Yeah, I love I love little um, kind of behind the scenes details like that. One of my favourite is the the line in the Hellbent script. I don't know if you've you've heard of that because uh, obviously they they revisit the classic kind of Hartnell era TARDIS, um, and there's there's a, a description line like an action line saying uh, the Doctor dances around the TARDIS. TARDIS, uh, like a delirious Scottish man who's overexcited, you know, because like you see, see Stephen Moffat. I, I'd have to look up the exact line, but it's really, you know, you know that Stephen wrote that kind of like, I know Peter's going to love this. <laughs> um, and you really do feel his kind of passion for the Doctor kind of seep into his role, don't you? Like, I mean, I don't, I don't think uh, he ever, Peter Capaldi is, and it says his birthday today, so it's quite nice right, <laughs> uh, to yeah. talk about you know, him as a, as a, as an actor. Um, I, I really like how, uh, every single role here he's in, no matter what, uh, he will commit to 110%. Uh, the other day with some friends, I recently watched, uh, the movie hotel, which is a very weird and not, not especially good movie. Uh, but even then he just absolutely went for it in that role. Um, uh, as a side note, Paul McGann and uh, Bradley Walsh are also in that film. It's a very weird film. <laughs> um, but anyway, so uh, with his doctor, you just you just feel that passion. You feel that gravitas. You feel that kind of authenticity, I suppose. Um, I mean, obviously, uh, with, with, with Matt Smith's doctor and David Tennant's, uh, they had that real freshness to them. But I think with Peter, you have that, that almost extra level of of kind of gravitas and and uh, passion kind of coming through even in his very early episodes, uh, which I absolutely love. He underplays things much more than than Matt Smith and David Tennant, mm-hmm. I think, doesn't he? There's there's less kind of mugging. Not not like I mean I really like those doctors. I'm not in any way there, but there's there's less kind of mugging and that type of thing with um, with Capaldi. I feel like. 
Yeah, there's more of a, a nuance, isn't there, to his performance at times. Well, obviously, speaking of mugging of the Doctor, I think the next uh, episode is probably where we see a bit more of that from Peter in his um, competitiveness with Robin Hood in Robot of Sherwood, which is, uh, I think, uh, another fun romp by Mark Gatiss. And I, I think it's one of those episodes that isn't given enough uh, credit for being as as fun-filled as, as what it is. Mm-hmm. I, I, I was really surprised with... I don't think I'd watched it since it was broadcast, but I was really surprised how much I enjoyed this episode. Yeah, um, I, you're, you're going to find this a lot with me. I'm, I'm just going to say I love every episode <laughs> in this series. Uh, I, there's not a single episode in the series that I don't like. Um, there's some that I'm a little bit more... I have more criticism of, but I just... Especially that, that first... Those first four episodes and the kind of last few episodes and, well, basically all of it, but... Um, uh, yeah, I, I love this episode to bits. Um, I think I think the structure is so clever uh, with this series because um, obviously you have Deep Breath, which is very much kind of a transitional point uh, from the Smith era to the Cloudy era. So you have that real kind of dive into darkness, uh, as the Doctor said in Into the Dalek. Um, and then obviously you have him confronting his his main foe in the second episode and then the third episode uh kind of really looks at the doctor as a fictional or mythic kind of character um and you have robin hood as the contrast to that just as the dalek was kind of the contrast to uh the doctor's darkness uh and the half-faced man was kind of a representation of of like change and uh kind of searching for purpose um you know, Robin Hood very much represents the kind of fantastical idea of the Doctor. Um, and that's obviously, again, used through Clara, uh, who obviously admires Robin Hood a lot, but the Doctor is her hero. Uh, and um, I, I, I just think, uh, like you said, the episode doesn't get enough credit because it's it's very thematically rich, uh, as I was saying. Uh, and it's also just ridiculously funny. I, I find the script absolutely hilarious. Like, uh, I think the best scene for me is definitely the one when they're in the dungeon together. And yeah. the, the banter between Robin Hood and the Doctor and Clara is so much fun. And it's really witty and, and really well delivered. And it really shows how, uh, despite being kind of a darker incarnation, at least on the surface, uh, Peter Capaldi's Doctor can be really, really funny, um, especially in that kind of sneering competitiveness Um which just meant ends up making him look kind of stupid as well, because uh, you have this kind of um, Robin Hood and and the Doctor constantly trying to one up each other <laughs> in front of Clara and impress her, which is is a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I think it's brilliant. Like you say, the the the, the themes of, of of what is a hero and all that type of stuff, it it, it really works for this series, and, and the wider sort of Stephen Moffat era. You know about the importance of stories, and um, you know going back to the "we're all stories in the end" thing. Um, I think it's it, it kind of symbolises that that you know in the in when Doctor Who first started, you had Ian and Barbara who taught science and history, and they were the preoccupations of the series. And now you've got Clara being an English teacher, and it's stories and story and telling mm-hmm. which are you know the preoccupation of the series. So. It's a clever twist on the what Russell T Davies just called the celebrity historical, didn't they? Uh, where it's like they take a, a historical figure and they do a story around them, but obviously what they're doing now is they're doing a fictional one, but then the twist is that you find out that Robin Hood was actually real. Mm-hmm. 
Mark Gatiss has a lot of fun by using all the cliches that we've known from watching Robin Hood, whether it's the the Adventures of Robin Hood with Errol Flynn, of which kind of like is, is kind of like the look that's taken with the characters, but then also. Um, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, with the Sheriff of Nottingham, because I think Ben Miller is, is effectively channeling Alan, Alan Rickman in his yeah. Well, and it, it's taking all those kind of cliches, but then doing its own fresh, unique thing. Yeah, I I totally agree. Um, oh, I was going to say something else. Um, I think I think really. Uh, uh, it's definitely a comedy romp first and foremost. But like you said, there's there's a real kind of. Uh, depth to it and and one thing I absolutely adore about series eight is I don't think a single episode is kind of wasted every episode I mean you you might argue some of the episodes but I I I, I honestly think every single one uh does a lot for the characters it does a lot for for kind of building the identity and examining the identity of the 12th doctor it does a lot for Clara's character um like in this episode uh just I think the ending kind of conversation between uh the doctor and Robin Hood really sums up uh kind of not just uh this series or the 12th doctor series but um, Clara's entire character arc and indeed Stephen Moffat's entire philosophy um, when they talk about um, you know uh, I think the Doctor says I'm not a hero and um, and Robin Hood says uh, neither am I but you know if we try to be uh, if we pretend we are perhaps people will be heroes in our name and perhaps we'll both be stories um, and, and that really just condenses kind of that whole philosophy uh, really well and effectively the thing it made me think because they, yeah, at first there's some there's some doubt as to whether this Robin Hood can be real. You know, the doctor's saying, "Oh, it must be, we must be in a mini scope, um, like in yeah, Count of <laughs> Monsters, or, or there must be droids or clones or something like that." Um, and it, it just turns out that you know the the actual uh, legend of Robin Hood, as we all believe it, is is real. That uh, and jumping ahead to the end of this series, when when the, you get the the mid credit sting in Death in Heaven, when Santa um, <laughs> arrives in the TARDIS, and I remember thinking at the time, it's crazy that Doctor Who's been on over fifty years, and it's so um, kind of mercurial and uh, and, and that. We, that could be, you could be saying that Santa is real and he's a real person. Um, there's no there's no way of knowing, um, given that they've they've canonically made Robin Hood a real person. Uh, you know, is, is Santa going to be real in in this episode? Whereas in a lot of things, you could say, well, it's not going to be the real Santa. It's going to be, uh, you know, a villain or um, you know, a robot or something. So um, that and that helps to feed into that thing. I think going into the the Christmas special, which which isn't in this um, this still book, is it? Oh, isn't no. it? Oh, well, no. I, I guess it's kind of it's kind of like an epilogue to series eight, but also kind of uh, the beginning of series nine in some ways. So I suppose it can go in either, really, because it's like a bridge episode. Uh, one thing I, I really like, um, as you were saying about how uh, Stephen Moffat kind of takes the celebrity historical and turns it more into a kind of legend historical or a fantasy historical, um, I think that fits really well uh this whole episode, this whole series is kind of full of those kind of uh, nods, I suppose. Um, 
I, I obviously the big one is like Mary Poppins uh, with Missy, uh, and that in itself harkens back to like the Snowmen. Um, and again, it's really a Stephen Moffat wide thing because you have like uh, the Doctor, the Widow, and the Wardrobe, and uh, all of these kind of nods to kind of fantasy um, and kind of fantastical elements. And I, I really like how, uh, despite being a very grounded series, probably the most grounded. Uh, series of the new era in terms of uh, character um, I really like how this episode and episodes like The Forest of the Night uh, they do, they really kind of play up the whimsy side of things which is quite nice and it, it offers a nice contrast for this Doctor um, and it, it kind of shows that even though we are going this kind of darker more realistic grounded route uh, it's still Doctor Who it's still got the kind of cheesy or goofy or funny or silly elements to it um and i think this episode kind of sums that up really nicely yeah it's that whole uh, ethos that Stephen moffat i think he said when he was taking over the series and he said for series five for matt smith's first series he didn't say it was like he wanted to view it as as a fairy tale rather than um, a science fiction series and like have that as, as the kind of like the concept running through um Matt Smith's first series with how um, Amy Pond saw the Doctor, and I think that that concept does creep into a lot of his future episodes, like you say, uh, and also that theme still runs through his entire era. I think you know as that you know Doctor is just a hard science fiction series, or it can be it can be a fairy tale if it, if it chooses, mm-hmm. to be, and it works. Uh, in that story concept, it, it works with any kind of story that, that you give it. Um, just worth noting that, obviously, this episode was quite famous for a deleted scene, wasn't it? That was taken out just shortly mm-hmm. before yeah. the podcast. Uh, with the, the beheading of the Sheriff of Nottingham due to uh, unfortunate real-life events that the BBC decided to do the deep thing and cut that scene out and um, just after I'd watched the episode you can find it in rough cut format and it's, I think it's black and white and I have code on it the deleted scene is there on um, YouTube and it's a nice little funny scene but you don't really lose much with it not being actually in the episode mm-hmm. itself it's just a shame that that deleted scene wasn't then put back on the, the box set yeah, that's really funny, and you've just reminded me. Uh, the whole the first four episodes leaked, didn't they? Well, the the scripts definitely did, and and then like you said, the kind of black and white uh, versions did. Um, <laughs> I, I just remember the but that like being a massive thing uh, at the time. But it's funny how quickly you forget, like as time goes on, about the kind of context of uh, of these things. Um, <laughs> Yeah, because I think the the leaked version as well had um, the end of Into the Dalek, Rusty going back aboard a Dalek ship and blowing it up, um, which got deleted as well. Um, I never saw those, but um, just kind of sort of reported uh, elsewhere that, that that scene that was in the sort of early assembled version didn't make it to the final one. Yeah, they were accidentally broadcast or, or leaked online, weren't they? Was it one of the South American... TV companies that should have had it accidentally like put them out. And- yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, and then, speaking of, of different types of story and and kind of fairy tales and stuff, we've got um, in Listen almost like a sort of a campfire type story, don't we? About potentially a mysterious alien that uh, <laughs> that's, that's the perfect um, 
the perfect hider. Um, I think again, a superb episode, and and the way it just plays with the viewer expectations because particularly in, in, in the modern series, um, like just wherever the TARDIS lands, there's always aliens, whatever's going on, there's always aliens behind it. Um, and the Doctor's always right about that. So even when he looks like a kind of paranoid madman, he's trying to run around convincing everybody that, oh, there's aliens, and stuff like that. So to kind of undercut it with him, like just being wrong, um, it's it's kind of really clever, I think. I love that. It's another classic Moffat episode, isn't it, where he takes something that is traditionally very, very mundane or kind of like something from your childhood. And, you know, so it's like the whole, like, um, you know, statues that when you look away, they move. And then it's this one, and there's always something under your bed, no matter, like, what you, where you go, or there's always something in the room with you, and that's why you talk to yourself. You know, it, it, it's, it's such a simple idea, and then he takes it and makes it this brilliant, typical, behind-the-sofa um, take on it, you know, which is pure Moffat. And the bedroom blanket scene is just like... I, it, it's still freaky to this day, I think, if you're watching that. Yeah, and it's just a blanket. It's great, isn't it? It's like, it's like the cheapest effect. Um, <laughs> and it really does uh, like the hairs on the back of your neck stand up it's really creepy and I think um, I mean one of the things that makes this episode so I think different as you said is that it takes that familiar Stephen Moffat setup of uh, you know kind of <laughs> what if shadows had a monster living them in them uh, what if statues uh, were monsters uh, you know taking like you said taking those familiar concepts that we kind of encounter just day to day and and making them terrifying uh whereas in this case he does that but he almost subverts it because we don't know for sure if there was anything uh and i, I really like that you, you just it's never really revealed was the doctor just paranoid the whole time mm-hmm. uh was he just because every single thing that happens they have some sort of explanation for uh whether it's like the banging uh in the ship uh, it could just be uh the engines calling the pipe work uh, the child could have just been another kid playing a prank um, you know all these little things uh, and I think that's such a clever play on um, on kind of the, the usual formula that we're used to um, and another thing I mean I, I, I really do think uh, Listen is like kind of the quintessential Stephen Moffat Who episode uh, and kind of for me it sums up uh, what I love about Doctor Who so much because um, I love the juxtaposition of this creepy kind of mystery with the date scenes which are very kind of they hearken to Stephen Moffat's uh, pre-Doctor Who work like his coupling work is very kind of almost sitcom-y kind of uh, back and forth and I love the way that we jump between those scenes and the way that they play into that wider uh, kind of culmination of the story Um and I think it's just so clever the way it kind of captures that kind of uh, childhood fear um, in the purest sense, because we're literally focusing on uh, that that fear that every child has, uh, that there's something under their bed, uh, that when they get up at night, something's going to grab it. Um, and, and using that to look at, at the characters, to look at Danny Pink's character, to look at the Doctor's character, at the earliest we've seen them, uh, pre-timeless child, um, 
it, it's just fascinating to me. And I, I, I can't think of anything, any image more kind of um, Doctor Who and more kind of uh, special, I think. It, I think uh, the scene that really captures just how special Doctor Who can be and why it resonates so much with children uh, are the two scenes. Uh, the one where the Doctor uh, talks to Rupert Pink uh, about scared and uh, kind of says fear is a superpower um, and and uses that. And, and then how Clara takes that and says, you know... Um, a soldier so brave he doesn't need a gun and you, you get all of these little signifiers of who the doctor is and why he matters to children especially and why he resonates with them um and then you flip that on its head and have clara then comfort the doctor as a child mm-hmm. and i just think it's such a clever way of looking at doctor who through that lens i suppose and and kind of summing up uh, why the Doctor is special and the fact that he, he does stand out from other heroes uh, because he's kind of, uh, he is the soldier, he doesn't need a gun and he's fueled by fear that makes him kind and, and all of these wonderful kind of tying together with the War Doctor and things like that. It's, it's such a wonderful kind of philosophy, I think. Yeah, and this story, it's sort of uh, cranking up the anticipation for, for the Doctor and Danny meeting, isn't it? And I think this is the start of sort of setting them up a little bit as mirrors of each other. Um, as you were saying, Ruth, they they both have a childhood encounter with Clara, um, which is something traditionally that the Doctor's done, where he's met, um, you know, Amy and, and Kazran when their kids and affected them. Um, this is sort of Clara taking that Doctor role of doing that. Um, like you say, they both had that same kind of pep talk about fear, given the notion of a soldier without a gun. And then they've both chosen their own names as well, because uh, Rupert obviously doesn't um, stick with the name Rupert mm-hmm. and, and becomes Danny, and, and the Doctor's chosen his name. Um, so that obviously plays into their development um, as mirrors of each other as the series go on, goes on. Yeah, I mean, it's the second time we see Clara in a pivotal moment of the Doctor's, like, um, you know, timeline. Obviously, we saw that in, in the name of the Doctor, where she tells um you know the first doctor to not take that uh t40 capsule take the faulty yeah. one instead and then obviously you know we see her in an early even earlier moment in the same cabin that obviously that um the war doctor like you know used the moment um and then obviously we will see that um cabin again like towards the end of season nine the next series so um yeah, it's interesting how it all like kind of like ties together, and it's it's very clever. You know, Stephen Moffat sometimes says that he makes it all up on the fly, but you know, it's almost as if you, he's got a list of things that he likes, he wants to fit in, or he, he knows where this bit's gonna go in the future. Um, you know, I think he's he's a lot cleverer than uh, what he actually um, makes out when he uh, mm-hmm. says that makes it all up uh, as he goes in interviews. He's very self-deprecating, isn't he? As much as, <laughs> as much as the people that don't like him say, oh, you know, it's just Moffat trying to be clever and thinking he's clever, um, that never comes across in interviews. Mm-hmm. He's always unfailingly modest and self-deprecating. And um, I, I think, um, uh, I like you were saying about uh, Clara's role in this episode, um, she's very much... Uh, I think the doctor's teacher in a lot of ways and um obviously they pay that off in like heaven sent where she's writing on the blackboard um and uh, uh and obviously you have her in that role in this series of her kind of pushing the doctor and questioning him and challenging him um and he he has such a massive uh 
development and arc in this series uh, due to his relationship with Clara. Um, but I really like how we kind of see uh, this very kind of um, less secure, less confident version of Clara, as well as the kind of guiding force that she she is at the end of the episode. Um, obviously, she has that lovely speech to the young Doctor. Um, and like you said, it's very much turning the tables of the Doctor and companion relationship, which is a massive theme with Clara and the Doctor. Um, but I really like that juxtaposed against her scenes with Danny, where she is just has the worst case of foot-in-mouth syndrome. Um, and you, you kind of realise that she's actually... Uh, kind of not she she has a lot of uh, she's very self-assured but she's also kind of very uh, I suppose almost compensating for something Um, and uh, you see it in like um, the way that she says you know my mouth has a life of its own Um, I'm very up myself Uh, (laughs) things like that I just really like that kind of emotional honesty uh, with the characters. Um, and I really like how that fleshes out Danny's role as well and really helps you kind of get into that relationship. Okay, so uh, next up we have uh, Time Heist, um, which is obviously, uh, I think, one of the few episodes in the series I think you could call more of a filler episode. Although I think even then that it has so much to offer because... Uh, it's just a fun kind of uh, play on the heist genre uh, just for starters Um, it's got a really nice a really strong cast I think it's got a strong cast of side characters Um, obviously you've got Keely Hawes as the villain which is great Uh, so what do you guys think of this episode? I love it as well I think think it's great fun Um, there's so much kind of classic science fiction stuff there's telepathy shapeshifters cyborgs mutants like time travel like all all packed into one story and it's just really cool the way the the way it's shot the music's kind of like like from the oceans films or hustle um really fortunate that clara is dressed like somebody from (laughs) from an episode of hustle or something as well um before they go on the adventure so that's um so that's quite cool um and yeah the, the twist of them of them not knowing what they're trying to do um what what their objective is um but it's it's got all that kind of classic kind of heist movie stuff of them having everything just in place just at the right time um whereas it's it's usually the audience that don't know and you keep thinking that uh that the characters are going to get caught but then they've got something up sleeves it's it's coming as a surprise to the characters as well um so it's uh, yeah i thought it was a really good take on it yeah, it's, I think it's a, it's another very underrated episode, uh, similar to Stephen Thompson's previous one, uh, Curse of the Black Spot, which you know was one another one of those episodes that I think is quite underrated and not appreciated as much mm-hmm. as it could be. And again, obviously, you've got Stephen Moffat co-writing as well, and then you've got the timey-wimey elements to it. And like you say, it's a unique sci-fi kind of time travel take on Ocean's Eleven or Hustle, which was a huge series at the time, I think. Um, and we also get a, a cameo of Absalom Dak from yes. uh, the <laughs> which, you know, those little like little winks and nods are, are, make, make it as a really good episode for me. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think it's really underrated. I mean, I often see it kind of considered this kind of very forgettable, mediocre sort of episode, but I, I honestly have always found it really entertaining. Um, I mean, it, like you said, the whole pastiche of the heist movie is really fun and kind of unique uh, for, for Doctor Who, at least uh, 
that I can think of. Um, but I really think it still has a lot to offer a characterize as well. Um, like I was saying, I, I don't think there is an episode that doesn't have a lot to offer for both the Doctor and for Clara. I mean, in this one, you really kind of uh, liken to the Dalek, look at the Doctor's self-hatred, because obviously you have this mysterious figure of the architect um, and the, the Doctor kind of really resents him and the other characters really resent this figure of the architect. And of course it's the Doctor, um, but you have that really explicit bit where the Doctor's like, I hate the art- architect. And it's when he says that that he realises who it is, uh, which I think is very telling for this Doctor and how that all of that kind of gruff exterior is very much hiding this kind of real insecurity and uh, a kind of, like I said, self-hatred. Um, and also with Clara, you have, again, that kind of into the Dalek thing of um, the Doctor being very uh, kind of on the surface, very heartless. And, and Clara's kind of getting more used to it at this point. So uh, you have a Sai say, you know, I can tell you've been uh, traveling with him for a while because you're getting very good at the excuses, um, <laughs> which I think is a great line. Um, and there's also some really great unintentional foreshadowing in there. Um, it, like the scene between uh, Sai, the cyborg, and Clara, where he tells um, her that he wiped his memory of his family and friends uh, to protect them. Um, oh. And, uh, you know, she's like, uh, why would you do that? And he said, well, I suppose I must have loved them, which I think is such a great foreshadowing uh, for Series 9 and all of that arc there. Uh, definitely un- probably not ten- intentional, but still it's one of those things that you can look back on and say, oh, that's that's a fun bit of kind of foreshadowing shadowing yeah absolutely because yeah. i think at this stage um or i'm not sure when but clara was due to leave either in the end of this series or christmas special wasn't she and it was it was fairly late in the day as i understand it that she she stayed on <laughs> series nine um but yeah i'd never thought about that that's a really good point and um i oh another uh parallel that i just thought of is uh the you have that, uh, the creature, the, which the design for the teller is amazing in this episode. I think it's one of the best uh, kind of prosthetic jobs uh, that we've that I've seen in Doctor Who because it's so unique and eye-catching. Um, but there's that whole thing about him killing to protect uh, his partner, his uh, mate or whatever, um, and uh, that very much idea of... of doing anything to protect everything you love um mm. which again is just a very weird kind of um, parallel um however you read the doctor and Clara's relationship it's still very much a kind of devotion and you see uh the doctor's commitment to her and i, I like that kind of uh, hearkening back um uh, and another thing i really like about this episode um other side characters like i said um i think series eight is really strong with its guest characters um it's very good at building up that kind of camaraderie um i really like how in this episode you end it with like them having a takeaway together and telling jokes and i i don't think we really see that very often in in who episodes normally the guest characters are just dropped off somewhere you have a nice little thanking scene and then it's done you know the doctor and the companion go off and do whatever but in this one they're actually like hanging out together which i think is really nice and there's always this kind of tease that they might you know want to run into each other again which i I think is really sweet and it it kind of feels kind of fresh uh and it's a fun little twist on on the normal guest character resolution yeah i think having a a shapeshifter character like that you wonder whether she's going to turn up later in the series or in the finale because that's like the the tessellector isn't it in um 
uh, in series six that introduced in the in the earlier episodes, and then she's, she's very important for the finale. Um, so yeah, I, I remember at the time wondering if uh, if she would make a reappearance at some point. Yeah, we had quite a, uh, a history of uh, reoccurring characters, didn't we, from previous seasons? And uh, you know, I think the last one was was Craig the Lodger, wasn't it? Who mm. was who turned a couple of times in the Matt Smith era. And um, I think the only one that I can kind of like put my finger on uh, for this, obviously, um, if you discredit like the unit guys like Osgood and, and Kate Stewart, is uh, Riggsy, who obviously is uh, comes mm-hmm. up. And- episodes time so it's a shame that we never got to see these characters again because like you said they're very very interesting characters and it would have been great to have gone on another adventure with them or for the doctor to have like used them again uh, like we saw the regular occurrence of the paternoster gang like mm-hmm. throughout matt smith's era as well um the one notable thing as well i, I thought the ending was very similar to um the previous season's hide mm-hmm. um Obviously, you've got like, like you say, the teller is protecting his mate, and that's why he's doing that. And it's a, it's, it's a, a twist that Doctor Who does not all the time, but it, it's a clever twist that you know the monster isn't the monster; uh, the monster is actually the humans. Um, you know, I thought that was a, something that we haven't seen for a, quite some time in the show. Yeah, it's a different motivation, isn't it, than just uh, conquest or uh, or power? It's yeah, just actual. Uh, kind of love and devotion. Right, so we move on to The Caretaker, uh, which is by Gareth Roberts and Stephen Moffat as well. And um, it's Gareth Roberts' last script that he wrote for the show. Uh, um, And it's got a very kind of uh, Sarah Jane Adventures kind of feel to it, hasn't it? Because it's set during the... uh, in the school... And it's the first proper meeting that we get between the Doctor and uh, Danny. Yeah, um, so this is an episode uh, that has, I think, aged poorly in some regards. Uh, There's certainly uh, discussions you can have about kind of racist stereotypes and things like that, uh, especially given the kind of optics of the Doctor Danny relationship, which I think the Doctor is kind of this is the one episode where I think the Doctor goes too far in being mean spirited, um, and you know there's definitely a lot to kind of pick apart there. Um, but I also think there's a lot to really like about this episode. Um, I really like uh, the stuff it does with Clara. I love the the way you see her whole kind of the up until this point she's uh, very much kept her private life her personal life and her doctor life separate um and then in this episode they just crash into each other and kind of explode which is great fun and seeing her kind of really pushed and uh, kind of at her wits end a bit is is a lot of fun um and I, I do like that conflict a lot um and kind of really questioning why does Clara really travel with the doctor uh what was her motivation uh ultimately which world will she choose because that's really the big question uh whether she will uh, ever be able to settle into normal life or whether the life of the doctor is really what's calling her and obviously we know the answer to that uh in the end and it's it really answered in this series but this is kind of the episode that really focuses uh 
you know, directly on that question. Um, and I, I like the a lot of the kind of comedy elements. Uh, like you said, it being based in school. I like the fake eleventh Doctor. Um, <laughs> um, Twelve being very kind of tickled by that, um, and you really see his kind of ego there. Um, so yeah, there's definitely a lot to love, um, but also a lot to criticise. So it's kind of. Uh, I think it's kind of a, a complex episode for me, let's say. I think you've touched upon something very um, interesting there when you say about, obviously, the relationship between Danny and, and the Doctor. And obviously you've got the, the, the running plot line throughout the series that, you know, the Doctor kind of, like, doesn't like soldiers and therefore that's why he takes an instant dis- dislike to Danny. But um, you said about the relationship and how he mocks him and he's always calling him P.E., um, it reminded me a lot of how the ninth Doctor related to Mickey, all in, always calling him Ricky, always calling him, you know calling him thick. You know, it's kind of like that because perhaps there was I don't know some jealousy there from the Doctor, like with his relationship with Rose, and then obviously is this kind of like a, kind of like a parallel with him and and his relationship with Clara. Um, so. The, I think there's kind of like a little bit of a callback there to how he reacted to Mickey, to how he's also reacting to... Well, but it, it, the, the play on it is that obviously he, he um, takes the wrong idea and thinks that it's actually the Matt Smith bow tie wearing lookalike teacher who's actually Clara, Clara's boyfriend. And obviously that is that a, um, a reflection on the Doctor's ego there, you know, mm. and, and calls back to... The, the line in Deep Breath where he said, you know, that that might be your boyfriend on the phone. I don't have a boyfriend. That, well, you know, I never said it was your mistake to make, you know, mm-hmm. the doctor's mistake to make. So it's interesting that you picked up there on the relationship between them. Yeah, and I suppose um, there's almost kind of like a kind of play, because Gareth Roberts uh, tends to, with his Earth-based stories, like, um, you know, The Lodger or Closing Time, very much focus on almost kind of a rom-com-y, mundane kind of uh, pastiche, I guess. Um, so, you know, regardless of how you read the Doctor and Clara's relationship, it is almost like a love triangle. Um, and uh, you very much have that kind of jealousy and that back and forth. Um, although I do, I do feel that Clara is given enough focus and agency where she's not just a prize to be fought over you know it's very much I think framed more in terms of her personal dilemma and what these two men represent in her life more than just who's she going to choose you know it's 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 a lot more complex than that because it's mm-hmm. Doctor Who the relationships are a lot more complex um and uh obviously her relationship with the Doctor is a lot more complex than that um I, I do think, you know, you touched a bit on uh, the Mickey uh, Doctor and the Danny Doctor. I do think it's very unfortunate, um, obviously not intentional, that both of them were black men, um, because obviously having that kind of hostile uh, kind of um, relationship between the Doctor and the Companion's love interest in that light is quite uncomfortable in hindsight. Um, and I do think it's something uh, that needs to be kind of acknowledged, I suppose, when you talk about that. And you have, I think it has to be acknowledged with this episode in particular, like I said. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, I, I really love Danny as a character. Um, he's another one that kind of gets a lot of flack, um, either in the light of him... I think people often, like, project a persona onto him that isn't 
doesn't really match up with what we know. They call him controlling and things like that. But I, I think uh, people often kind of uh, make him the controlling one in the relationship when really Clara is the, the very flawed individual uh, in their dynamic. Um, because uh, Clara's entire problem, obviously, is that she's not being emotionally honest. She's not uh, opening up to Danny about her life, about this thing that is such an important part of her. She's very guarded. Uh, she's very kind of disingenuous a lot of the time. Uh, and Danny really kind of just wants her to be open with him, which is kind of the foundation of a relationship with someone. You need that mutual trust. And Clara is just too kind of self-involved to really give that back to Danny. Um and I think that's something that often gets left out in the discussion of this episode is how it's very much just as much of it as it's about the doctor and Danny and their kind of um, hostility towards each other and their conflict. Um, there's also very much that idea of Clara as a person and the way she tries to compartmentalize and control every aspect of her life and the way that that can ultimately damage her her relationships and her opportunities. Uh, and eventually it ends up severing her entire normal life um, because she because of how she is. Um, and I think that's such an interesting arc that the series goes on to expand more. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I think there's a lot to pick apart about the relationship dynamics in this episode in particular. Yeah, and I think uh, what you're saying about the the two parts of a life clashing, it, it, it can be quite relatable that as well. If you're in a situation where like your your like your work friends and your your sort of real life friends meet, and you've you know you, you uh, it, it can be quite weird sometimes because you've got to be a different person at work and that type of thing. That uh, it's it's quite a relatable thing that side of it. Um, and but the the sort of the choice for her, um, she's I know she's teaching Pride and Prejudice, which which sort of reflects that a little bit. It's the the choice between the soldier and the sort of aristocratic gentleman, which Danny certainly uh, depicts the Doctor as once he finds out that he's a time lord and he focuses on the sort mm -hmm. of the, the lord part of it. So um, there's some kind of thematic stuff in there. Um, but yeah, the, it is it is very uncomfortable to watch, um, as it was with the Ninth Doctor and Mickey. I was going to say that as well. It's um, it is uncomfortable to watch the Doctor be that way with Danny uh, when he was much more accepting of, say, Rory. You know, kind of in between mm -hmm. times. It's um, yeah, it doesn't. It, it's not a good look at all. Um, I think I saw on Twitter, Ruth, you described Danny as a cinnamon bun, but I I, I don't know that expression. I don't really know what that means. Uh, I'm sure. Um, uh, basically, uh, it's, it's very much kind of sums up someone who's very, uh, I don't want to say innocent, but very good-natured and good-hearted uh, without kind of any kind of pretense or someone who is just a genuinely good and honest and uh, good-natured person is a good way to sum it up, I suppose. Um, and I, I think, um, and like I said, that, that was, I think, when I tweeted that, it was very much in the context of people kind of painting him as this very controlling figure, which again, I think is influenced by certain biases um, because I don't think Danny, as we see as a character, is like that at all. He's very awkward. He's very genuine. Uh, he's, he, he really just wants emotional honesty uh, from Clara. And really, I definitely think Clara is the one at fault in their relationship nine times out of ten. Like, she is not a very good girlfriend, and she says it herself. Um and, uh, you know, I, I really like how this episode kind of allows us to see 
the companion from someone else's perspective, I suppose. Because uh, so often the companion is our eyes in the story. Um, so it's nice to have characters on the outside to kind of see the companion. I, I mean, Jackie Tyler and Mickey were very much that for Rose. Um and I, I really like it when they bring in those characters. And obviously Clara was really lacking that uh, for her series because um, obviously uh, Rose had her family, um, Martha had her family, Donna had Wilf and her mum. Uh, Amy had Rory, I suppose, to an extent, um, although obviously he became a companion. Um, so Clara, other than the Matalans, who were very much kind of not really involved that much um, in Eshikal Nightmare and Silver, which I like to forget about their episodes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it was really nice to introduce a character that could really be kind of a grounding force for Clara, just as Clara grounds the Doctor. Uh, Danny is very much that for her. Uh, so it's very telling that it's in losing that that Clara goes full off the edge, uh, time travelling, um, and it ultimately chooses the Doctor's world. What I remember watching at this time, the first time I saw this, I was fully convinced that Danny would become a companion. Um, and that it would um, it would reflect like the original TARDIS crew where you would have um, maybe sort of Courtney as well. So that you'd, you'd have them traveling together as two Coal Hill teachers um, and, a, and a younger woman um, that would get that for a little while. But it, they, they never quite all travel at the same time or it doesn't quite come together. Uh, and yeah. I think um, I do think that was kind of in, I, I mean, as much as I love the idea of having that dynamic and kind of echoing that I do like that they ultimately didn't go with that with Danny because it really kind of says a lot about his character like he's offered a time machine uh you know I'm sure Carl would find a way to persuade the doctor to take him on board for an adventure but you never really get the sense that he is that bothered about it um and I think that says a lot about his character that he uh, obviously in the forest of the night goes into that more but he doesn't need what Clara needs like she has this constant desire uh to see more to do more uh very much like someone like Donna or Rose or most companions but in her it's almost like a kind of a mania like an obsession an addiction um so Danny very much represents kind of the opposite of that someone who is happy with the small things with with his life as it is with the mundane um and he doesn't need that um so i think keeping those two separate uh was ultimately down to that choice it was all about kind of how best to frame clara's kind of internal dilemma i suppose it's interesting and i don't think it is it's as strong as what they could have made it but it's we do see some flashbacks towards um, Danny's army service later on in the season, don't we? It's almost as if, like, Danny probably had a little bit of, like, post-traumatic stress disorder, like, coming out of the army because of, like, what happened, as we see, like, in the, in the season finale. Um, and that's why he's more accepting of, of the, the little things and the, the, the normal life. And that's probably why he doesn't have that desire to follow Clara into the TARDIS like Rory did, you know, and obviously like Mickey did as well. Those two characters wanted to be part of the world that um, Rose and Amy found themselves in. And, and Danny seems to be very much of the opinion of like, well, 
you know, if, if if it's okay and he looks after you and and if you can come back safely, you know, you go off and do your thing, but you know, I'll be here waiting for you. And he just wants that honesty from Clara, and I think that then comes to a head in the next couple of episodes. Do you think the the fish people that the Doctor takes Clara to visit? Um, in that sort of opening montage of the ones from um, the Underwater Menace, because my head canon is it, it definitely is. Them. <laughs> oh God! <Yeah>. Oh, God. <laughs> um, I always assume that they survived the destruction of Atlantis because they can just they can just swim out to sea, can't they? <laughs> that there's a lost lost colony of them somewhere that the Doctor goes to visit, and they can do their weird fish dance for him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so next up is Kill the Moon. Um, I love this as well. It's just mm-hmm. exciting, scary story with a, a big, bold, crazy idea um, at the centre of it, which you would not get in virtually any other TV series. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the way that Doctor Who's always sort of speculated, like a science fiction explanation for the Loch Ness monster or Stonehenge or, or Atlantis, as we we're talking about there with um, <laughs> with the underwater menace. In fact, they've had Atlantis two or three times. Um, but yeah, the, the moon being the egg of a giant space creature is is, is brilliant and. Um, there's almost something almost like hitchhikers about it, like the, the, the way the Earth turns out to just be a giant computer. Um, and I think it does tie in as well. The like we, we've got in the Forest of the Night in this series as well, which is you know changing the nature of what the Earth and the Moon are, and making them sort of strange and unusual in the way that that Doctor Who does take everyday things and tries to make them uh, scary and unusual. Yeah, I picked up on that. Uh, that the endings of of the two episodes are, are very very similar, you know. And in one ending, you've got like the Doctor like takes a step back and says that it's humanity's choice to to make that decision. Whereas, like obviously in in the, the further episode, Forest of the Night, he then kind of, he figures out the problem and then gives that to to humanity you know so it, but but they have a very same like kind of like similar uh, ending and i think and again these are two episodes that you know have great atmosphere in them uh, you know as a arachnophobe i wasn't a big fan <laughs> of like the, the spiders in this because they're very well designed and very well done they're almost like a spider but with a bit of like an alien mouth uh, to them um but it it it's got a great creepy atmosphere the, the location work in Lanzarote for the moon surfaces are absolutely inspired you know to, to go out and do that and then do the computer um, colour changes to make it like more grey and you know take away the sunshine and put the black sky in was very very clever but like you say it's the denouement in both episodes which I think um, probably is why these two episodes aren't as highly regarded as the other episodes in this series. Because, and it's a shame, really, because one of the things that Doctor Who really does well is the wild concept, you know, because it, it is such a unique kind of science fiction show that you can do a story where the Daleks attempt to hollow out the core of the Earth to pilot around as a spaceship. You know, so why can't the moon be an egg? that has a, a creature inside it. Um, the only thing that I've got a problem with is the fact that it's then replaced by <laughs> exactly the same shape, like egg. <laughs> Once it's gone, I think um, there could have been an easier change around mm-hmm. that. Could have just had 
the moon developed a big crack in it, and then the doctor says, oh, don't worry about that. A uh, hundred years, white <laughs> tides uh, surfs up, and don't worry, it'll repair itself, it's fine. <laughs> so, said that at the end, rather than it yeah. like by an exact replica, exact same thing. And I think that's probably why that this episode is kind of like not as, you know, held up there as the ones surrounding it. Yeah, that's that's the one bit. Like, I think um, that that bit is just plain bemusing. It it feels to me like the sudden missing sister in the bush scene. Like, it's just kind of like <laughs> okay, <laughs> uh, you kind of nonsensical and contrived uh, rather than because the actual core concepts of both those stories, and obviously we're going to in the forest of the nightmare, are really just amazing. Like, they're really fun and out there and like you said quintessentially Doctor Who no other series could do it at least not in quite that way um, and I love the Doctor's genuine glee at the discovery as well um, but obviously and, and I, I, I it's kind of when people criticise it on science grounds I'm just like since when has Doctor Who ever been a hard sci-fi show <laughs> like it does have it, it can be any genre at once it can be absolutely crazy it can be uh, pure fantasy if you if you want it to be um and this is very much one of those episodes where it it doesn't need to be scientifically accurate like it can just be ridiculous and silly and nonsensical uh but that obviously is a different thing from being contrived which i think laying the egg suddenly afterwards was it was just kind of like oh no we need a moon to replace this creature okay it just laid another one that was exactly the same size even though it's bigger than it and that kind of takes you out of the story rather than yeah. you know um maybe but, it's just nearer yeah maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um you get the sense that that was kind of like a script note on Pitanus's draft like oh shit, I need to replace the moon. <laughs> so just pencil something in. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think this episode is just, other than that bit of a weird ending, uh, is absolutely fantastic. Um, it's really the turning point of the whole series uh, and really of both the Doctor and Clara's entire character arcs, I'd argue. It's such a pivotal episode um, in that regard. Like, um, uh, if you look specifically uh, at the Doctor, this is where you see him really shift from that more uh, purely pragmatic perspective to really... Uh, connecting with Clara and and trying to empathize and 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 respect humanity's agency but also respect their you know also help them um and I think you you can trace a really clear arc for the 12th doctor uh using um these episodes so if you start kill the moon you have that it's not my problem uh not because the doctor doesn't care but because he's like i'm respecting you you sort this out i've given you the tools you need you can make the decision uh but obviously ultimately it's a very condescending and patronizing and unhelpful way to handle the situation <laughs> and you see how he's grown from that in in the forest of the night where he repeats clara's words back to her saying this is my earth too um and 
you know, you see that very clear progression. And then even further along, you end up with uh, series 10, where the Doctor's at the end of his character arc, and you see uh, a similar dilemma with the serpent in under the ice in the Thames. Um, you have that creature, and, um, you know, instead of doing what he did with Clara and abandoning her, he says to Bill, you know, what, what do you want to do? And I will carry it out. You know, I'll respect your agency, and I'll respect you uh, as a human on behalf of humanity, but obviously I'm serving at the pleasure of the human race. I'm not abandoning you. Uh, and that's such a cool little arc, I think. And it seems to be a genre, a mini genre, you know, giant creatures trapped. You know, you've got the beast below, kill the moon, uh, thin ice. Um, but I think each of those episodes uh, is handled differently and you see the, the different sides of the Doctor. Um, and obviously uh, kill the moon for Clara is, you know, in some ways it's it, it's a massive kind of, shift in her character as well um because you see her being forced into the doctor's role you know where she'll jump into it readily um in in flatline and in all the other episodes after that uh, this is really where she's pushed into it she's pushed into having that role of making those big choices um and you see the kind of way that weighs on a person um and she's basically, you know, the the fate of the entire planet is in her hands. Obviously, she's got Courtney uh, and uh, the astronaut as well. Um, but really, as far as the overall context is concerned, it's Clara's, you know, decision. Um, and she's ultimately the one who reverses it. Um, and I think it's very telling about Clara's character that she'll do this, like, democratic well semi-democratic thing of uh if you want us to kill the moon turn your lights off uh which oh, but, you know is a flawed plan but it's probably the best plan you you'd have in that situation and then she just goes she just ignores it because she does what she thinks is is best um and i think that's very telling about her character <laughs> um and um you really see that in that uh, that amazing, amazing scene at the end, uh, which I think is some of the best acting from Jenna Coleman in Doctor Who, uh, where she's really, at, you know, going at the Doctor um, and saying, um, you know, I'll slap you so hard, you regenerate. Um, but there's a really telling speech from her, which is, uh, you know, and don't you dare lump me in with all those tiny humans that you think are so silly and predictable. Um and um, it very much shows how much she resents uh, the Doctor seeing her like that. Um, and also the Doctor's genuine, general like patronising attitude towards humanity up until this point in these episodes. Um, so there's just so much to unpack, I think, uh, from the whole episode, but especially from that ending scene about the Doctor, about his perspective, about Clara, and about how it's in that clash that you see that massive shift for both of them. You see Clara almost become more like the pragmatic cold doctor and the doctor picking up that more kind of empathetic and respectful uh, kind of angle. So you really see how these characters push each other and change each other in this episode. You can almost read it as well as the doctor, like he's been wrong a few times as well. He's, he's wronging into the Dalek about... Uh, you know, it's Cloud that has to say, you know, no, you've you've taken the wrong lesson, you know, about the Dalek. Uh, you could argue he's wrong about what's happening in, in Listen. Uh, he's wrong about Robin Hood not um, existing. Mm -hmm. So there's maybe like a sense of, well, Clara, I might make the wrong decision because even in uh, The Beast Below, which you mentioned there, 
without Amy's intervention, the Doctor was going to make the wrong decision and, and kill the space well, wasn't he? So it's almost like, I, I don't know if I can, can make this right decision, whether I'm qualified, I'd, I'd kind of <laughs> rather leave it to Clara. Um, but the thing, like you were saying, I think the main lesson of this episode is that when a vote isn't legally binding, you should ignore it. If the result, <laughs> if, if the result is clearly wrong, you shouldn't go ahead with it. <laughs> uh, only book in 50% population because you can only see one side of the earth at yeah. the time yeah all the other people who weren't switching the lights on because they're in daylight i think they <laughs> i think that they i think that was a 48 percent uh split so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. for another vote yeah um, <laughs> yeah but it's, it's interesting obviously that the whole thing regarding the doctor and clara and that his whole thing of like well it's not my decision to make you make that decision it's humanity's thing. It's like, it could be seen as the very cold-hearted, but again, it kind of links into how the Doctor sometimes is during the series. And, and the best example that I could think of is the scene in the Seeds of Doom where uh, they're in the Arctic base and they're talking about the discussion of amputating the infected scientist's hand to stop the crinoid uh, infection and the doctor saying, "Well, I'm not doing it. You've got, you know, you, you've got to help yourselves." You know, and it's kind of like it's that decision ramped up to eleven, effectively. That now, instead of just affecting one group of scientists in an Arctic base, now affects the whole of the world. So it's a similar kind of like um, response from the doctor, but it, it, I remember it getting quite a, a different polarized response from fandom when it aired. Which is interesting because I do think you're right. I do think the Doctor certain. I don't think either character is totally in the right or wrong uh, in this episode. The Doctor does have a point. He he doesn't want to always have to be the one. I mean, for one, on the one hand, he must be tired of making those calls constantly um, because that's a massive burden to bear. But also, I think he also he says in the episode that was me respecting you. You know. Um, but there's obviously like a happy medium there because there's respecting and then there's basically abandoning. You know, he could still have been there, you know, to offer moral support, to offer what he knew because he had information that he just didn't give Clara. So yeah. she was very much going on a hunch and on a guess, whereas he had more knowledge that she didn't have. Um, and obviously, if you look at it, purely in terms of their friendship, it was just abandoning her. And it was abandoning her with the child as well, which was very irresponsible. Um, so this is why I really love uh, the way this episode connects to Thin Ice, because I think you see in Thin Ice that happy medium. You see the Doctor saying, Bill, this is your choice, but I will be here to support you and I will respect you and I will help you carry out whatever you think is right. And that really, I think, is that mutual respect uh, that you need in a healthy doctor-companion relationship. Um, and you really see, and I, I, I think it's really important that Clara does properly push back on him in this episode because um, you see how... Uh, distressing it is for her um but also you see her almost kind of I don't want to say enjoying it but she certainly isn't uh out of place or uncomfortable being in that position as we see and she gets more and more comfortable being in that position as things go on um and we talked a bit about the caretaker um and there's that really important ending where um you know uh about how the doc about how the doctor is like an officer uh, like danny's officer um and there's a direct line uh 
kind of trace between life with the doctor and being a soldier, being, you know, in, in a war zone. Um, and I really like how they kind of tie that into the doctor's wider arc of soldiers and his hostility towards them, because it's very much, uh, I suppose, exploring the reality of the doctor's life um, and how lives are on the line and how it can change you as a person. Um, and I think that's just really fascinating to go into. And obviously, I, I think flatline is really the culmination of that. So we'll go into that a bit more. All right. So next up, we have uh, Mummy on the Orient Express, um, which we alluded to was kind of the point at which you could say the 12th Doctor is fully formed I suppose or as or becoming closer to being fully formed um because he's very much a character that's constantly uh, evolving and exploring different facets and questioning himself so you really feel um a lot of those unique and uh kind of fun qualities of the 12th Doctor in this episode that resonates you know all the way to the end um and it's just generally a, a really fun episode uh what do you guys think of Mummy and Your Express I love it um it's, it's only the second time we've had mummies in Doctor Who and obviously sort of Pyramids of Mars cast a very long shadow it's regarded as a as an all-time classic so it was obviously a bit of a risk probably for them to um to, to retread some of that ground but um think they wisely kind of took the very different approach you've got a much more traditional mummy of a, a sort of a staggering rotting corpse kind of swaddled in bandages and the big kind of hulking robots that they had last time um you've got the continuing theme that it was a soldier so like the scorevox blitzer and then and you've got these these sort of soldier figures throughout this series um and it's it's the soldier that blindly follows orders which are the ones that the doctor particularly has his animosity for um, and, he, and the kind of resolution is the doctor slipping in, like you said about the officer thing before, he slips into that officer role very easily and, and commands the mummy, the, the resolution, doesn't he, which, which um, you know, is uh, kind of giving credence to, to what Danny says about him. Yeah. I think. It's a great debut from uh, being human writer Jamie Matheson, and mm. I think this and the subsequent script by Flatline uh, like really showed like uh, a new talent in Doctor Who writers, and it's a shame he didn't um, write m many more. He only wrote another two episodes, I think, and he hasn't contributed to the series since um, we've had the the changeover. Um, but yeah, the foretold is a is a brilliant, unique design. Like you say, it harkens back to that proper traditional uh, mummy, you know. And you were reminded of the Boris Karloff or the Christopher Lee versions that you know that we used to seeing on film. And it's that premise of the 66 seconds, isn't it? You've got 66 seconds in which to obviously, like, you know, try and escape from it, but you can't. Um, and it, it is that... The, the thing that I like about the episodes, besides that, the, the Orient Express setting, and obviously the fact that we've quite a unique kind of, like, monster, is that it's the start of the interesting character dynamic now between the Doctor and Clara where he takes her for one last hurrah and they're kind of like airing out their grievances from the previous episode but then you get to the decision at the end that Clara makes now that well why can't I have the best of both worlds why can't I continue travelling with the Doctor and there's no harm in me keeping it from Danny and it's almost like she can't now quit being with the Doctor and that then spirals into the arc that we have 
in the next season mm-hmm. where she gets more reckless with her adventuring with the Doctor, which then culminates into like what happens in uh, Face the Raven. So I think it's the start of a really interesting like push between the Doctor and the Clara, and and how like she kind of like now decides, makes that fateful decision that I'm going to continue with the Doctor now. Yeah, it's it's absolutely fascinating, um, and like you said, it really is that. It, it like just like Kill the Moon is a turning point. This is also its own kind of turning point. Uh, it's a turning point in very much, I think, uh, you have Kill the Moon, which is really like pushing Clara close to the edge of, you know, she, there's a point where she just wants to give it all up, but she can't. She She's just too in love with this life. And um, uh, obviously the fact that she still wants to have this last hurrah is very telling in that regard because some people would just close the book there. Um, and, and the character of Maisie in that story actually points that out to her saying, you know, he was high-handed, he was awful, and you got on a train with him, which kind of <laughs> says a lot about the truth, really. And, um, and it's really the point where, like I said, in terms of the Doctor kind of the 12th Doctor really emerging from this uh, exploration, um, it's the point at which Clara really understands his morality uh, because you have that scene on the beach where he's talking about how he would have sacrificed uh, as many people as necessary to save everyone else Um, and talking about how that was a pragmatic decision. It wasn't out of heartlessness, uh, even though it might seem that way. And you really see that click in our head. And obviously that's, the point where she's like to hell with the last row let's just carry on and um i think it's it's arguable what might or might not have happened had danny not died um but i do very much think that that was really the point where clara was she'd made her choice whether consciously or not she had made her choice in being pushed so far to the edge and still just being like i can't give this up and it's very much framed as an addiction um and like you said, it, it spirals and spirals until we get to face the raven. Um, and there's a whole lot of stuff to unpack in that regard, but um, I'll, I'll talk more about it when we get to Dark Water. But there's something kind of tragic about it, but also kind of uh, really fun and exhilarating because that's that scene is so joyful at the end. You see them both really happy, but you also kind of feel this uncertainty because you know she's lying to Danny but you also worry what that might mean for her and for the doctor and for their relationship and you know as we know from every uh, series uh, especially with characters like Rose and Donna who are also very uh, kind of enchanted and enthralled by their life with the doctor it, it always ends a certain way but with Clara I think it's taken to an even further extreme because we see it even more framed as an addiction an obsession uh one that isn't necessarily uh healthy in the to the extent that she's taking it um so yeah just a lot to unpack from that and uh even you know that's the ending but even everything before that is just so brilliantly written it's so sharp um uh the side characters are fantastic the whole concept it's just it's just so much fun it made me think about um, the the bit in deep breath when when Clara says to the doc to the to the clockwork man, you know, you don't um, threats don't work unless you deliver. Like never start with your final sanction. Sanction, you've got nowhere to go but backwards. And Clara's kind of done that now, saying, right, mm-hmm. 
I'm done with you, doctor. Um, but then very shortly after, say, we'll go and then we'll go for one last um, mm-hmm. one last holiday, so or one last trip. So the doctor kind of knows now that she's not going to follow up on it. Um, and I think that does happen a couple more times through the series. I think I've got them noted down, hopefully. Uh, one of them I know is, is um, in oh. Death in Heaven is when she says to Danny, if you say, I love, I love you one more time, then I'm going to hang up. Um, and he says it because he doesn't want her to follow him, and then and she hangs up. So I feel like that is a little bit of a motif through the series as well mm-hmm. about that. Um, you know, don't don't say a threat unless you're going to deliver on it, kind of thing. Yeah, I love the kind of um, getting more into like the aesthetics and the vibe of the episode. It's obviously a play on uh, Agatha Christie, mm-hmm. but it, I love the kind of jazzy space noir kind of thing they have going on as well i love the uh the music that the foxes song that they have in there i love the kind of saxophone i love that scene in the hallway that's kind of framed um where it's all kind of it's very moody uh, and you have that kind of um conversation between the doctor and clara um and i really really love how you see the characters paralleled with each other how they're both like um that they can't they can't sleep uh, in their cabins and the doctor's like oh I, I should probably wake Clara up but oh no she's she won't be interested and then he goes off to investigate and then Clara comes immediately out to investigate and almost wakes the doctor up and then goes off um, and it very much shows that those two are driven by similar sort of things they're very driven by curiosity and you know the need to find out what the mystery is about so and you know there's a real kind of <laughs> hypocrisy to Clara in this episode which is very fun and like like I said the characters point it out uh, because she tells the doctor off for for making her lie for making her an accomplice and as if she hasn't lied to like Danny for the past however (laughs) long and um yeah it's just great to see these characters play off each other uh and seeing that conflict come to some sort of resolution um and a really interesting and I think a complex resolution we also get a great turn from uh, Frank Skinner as Perkins, who, yeah. uh, you know, again, nice little, um, you know, cameo mm-hmm. uh, from somebody who's traditionally not really an actor. Uh, and also it turned out that we, we found out from the behind-the-scenes stuff that he's actually a huge Doctor Who fan mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, well, he got the part because he, um, I, I listened to his, well, the podcast of his radio show um, that he does uh, every Saturday morning. And um, he was talking about how much he loved Doctor Who, and he was saying, I'd love to get a part on it. And that's kind of started, I think, the ball rolling, and obviously maybe the word got to Stephen Moffat or the, or the right people, and um, and that's how he got the part. Uh, but yeah, I, I love Frank Skinner. He's absolutely brilliant, and I, I love him in this as well. Wasn't he watching the Sensorites or something when he got the, the <laughs> agent saying, we've got the part for Yeah, oh, like on, his, on his tour bus, I think, on a stand-up tour, something like that, he was watching the Sensorites. <laughs> He must have had trouble sleeping that day. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I story watch. Yeah. Uh, do you think it, pick, it picks up on a line from um, Victory of the Daleks, this, doesn't it? I think, is it Victory of the Daleks, where the 11th Doctor says something about the, the, the Orient Express in space? Oh, it's the end of um, uh, The Big Bang, I think. Five, yeah. Series no, 5. Right, yeah. yeah, I knew um, it was Series 5. At the end of the episode, because... Uh, it's just after Amy and Rory's wedding and he gets the phone call and it's like um, and I do like how they, they reference that how this this person who's clearly been wanting the Doctor to yeah. come and solve the mystery has been like just constantly ringing him and he never actually 
picks up on that offer. Um, and I do like how they, they tie that into the fact that it's been this kind of ongoing mystery for the Doctor. And that's the place he chooses to take Clara for their last hurrah. This thing he knows is a blatant red flag <laughs> mystery, which I think is a lot of fun. Like, of course, he'd choose that for their final kind of outing together, which is supposed to be very low key. Um, so I, I, I really enjoy that. Um, and uh, I think um, I, I, I just love the direction of this episode. Um, I think it was the same guy who did Kill the Moon. I need to look up uh, the name. Um but I absolutely love like when when the foretold uh, appears and you have that kind of the light bulb flickering, the clock peering up on the screen, and the way that it cuts between the victim's perspective and everyone else's perspective. It's so well done and so clever. Mm-hmm. And each time it happens, uh, you're kind of wondering how things are going to play out. Um, and obviously you have that ending where the Doctor... Uh, takes on Maisie's, uh, you know, she has a target on her back and he transfers it to himself and you see that sacrifice um, that he's willing to to do and um, it shows that other side to his heroism, like it's not just pure pragmatism, there's actual sacrifice in there and, uh, you know, the Doctor's compassion as well. And also it's scientific curiosity because he, he's as curious mm-hmm. as anybody else to find out, like, what, what, happens so therefore it's like well here's my opportunity to actually experience this now and then try and like solve it which obviously you know is is what he does in the end with the whole um telling the soldier to stand down mm-hmm. and, and give him the salute and once again it's, it's using all of these different uh metaphors i suppose in these other characters to represent the doctor uh so obviously robin hood the dalek the uh, teller um and now you have this uh this other soldier who's just kind of trapped in in battle i suppose in the life of a soldier which is very kind of uh, meaningful in the context of everything else um and i yeah like you said the design and the prosthetics is amazing hey so yeah a flat line this is the second script from jamie matheson uh, a double bill from him uh, and again it's, it's a very very uh, impressive and like one two from the writer uh, it's a unique alien that he introduces into the show the boneless and I think it's a very very clever concept and something that we ha- really haven't seen before a, a two dimensional uh, adversary you know something that doesn't exist in the three dimensions that, that we know of uh, in this um, universe uh, and, and talking about supporting characters we've got Rigsy as well um, played by Jovian Wade who is a great character and then turns up again in the following season as well and as I said in at the beginning of the podcast this for, was for me the defining moment when um, the 12th Doctor really clicked for me when he became the man that stops the monsters mm-hmm. uh, but it's it's a unique kind of um, take of the TARDIS in peril, and it's also like also a, a different take on a bottle episode, which is where they kind of like have to keep like one character away for either budgetary or double shooting uh, reasons. So you've got like Capaldi stuck in the TARDIS, but uniquely the TARDIS is is losing power, and it's it's shrinking and I think that's a, a nice little thing that we hadn't really seen uh, in the series since Logopolis I don't think 
I think it's really nice that, and it, it's nice for kind of kids as well because it, it sort of shrinks down to like the size of the character options type of toys. So for, yeah. for sort of playing <laughs> along with it and and all that kind of stuff, it's. Um, and the prop is a toy, so that's yeah. That's quite <laughs> one of the flight control. I, I think so. Yeah, it's an actual oh. one of the actual like model tardises you can buy. <laughs> I didn't realise that, but that's that's a great thing for like kids watching on because they they can kind of play play along that episode <laughs> later. And same thing when Clara and uh, Briggsy are on the chair. You know, it's mm-hmm. kind of like that floor. The floor is lava type game, isn't it? You know, when they when they're trying to keep away from the uh, from the boneless. Um, and I think in terms of. The, the the doctor and Clara's relationship in this one they've they've um, you know not seen been able to see things from each other's point of view at times in this series so in in like the Kill the Moon and things like that whereas here the doctor literally sees things from Clara's point of view um, and the Clara's got to walk in the doctor's shoes kind of thing so it, it kind of uh, helps them to understand each other a little bit more. Yeah. Um, he's 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 he's, all, he's he can only see um, the feed from Clara's eyes, and it's different from especially this incarnation. He sometimes he doesn't can't tell people apart, and um, you know, like he he can't he doesn't notice in um, the Christmas one that that Clara's old at the end and that type of thing, does he? Is um, mm-hmm. he's not that kind of into people, whereas here he, he kind of just focuses him a bit more. Um, you know, kind of gives him a bit more perspective, I think. Uh, and he has to kind of confront his own modus operandi by watching it play out basically on TV. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and God, if if, if I, I could easily talk about this episode for an entire podcast, um, <laughs> it's <laughs> there's a lot to get into, and obviously the Clara stuff is very up my street. Um, but yeah, it's it's fascinating to me, and I don't think. I don't think the show had ever done it like this before. Uh, you've had Doctor Light stories, obviously, um, and you've had episodes where the character steps into the Doctor's shoes. Um, but what I really like about this episode is that not only, like you said, the Doctor is watching himself from the outside because Clara's doing all of the footwork. He's really kind of the technical support. Um, but you really see uh, a companion uh Clara specifically take on those darker pragmatic elements um and she fits the doctor's shoes too well and and that's kind of the the, where the resolution saying you're an exceptional doctor but goodness had nothing to do with it at the end um and obviously that ties into the 12th doctor's arc of um you know questioning whether he was a good man and self-examining and things like that uh but I really like what it says about Clara as well and the fact that she is so uh effective at at carrying out that side of the doctor you know the kind that will uh belly blink if someone dies in front of them and will say you know whatever is necessary to get people out of their alive and and she very much and I think this is really interesting. She very much almost has this very uh, clear detachment because at the end of it, she's very cheerful and nonchalant about the whole thing. And the doctor's very concerned by that because, you know, he says that's not something you should relish or enjoy having to make those calls and, and decisions. Um, and you very much see his his fear for her and his worry not only about him what it says about him but what it says about Clara and what direction she might be heading in um 
and you can always see that kind of uh, protectiveness over her that he developed in series nine kind of forming here because he's afraid of where she might end up going um, because of what this episode says about her attitude and the way that she picks up the not so admirable elements maybe of the doctor uh, and takes to it like, like a duck to water. Um and it's just really fun as an episode. Um, uh, like you said, Rigsy, I think, is such a good uh, companion for Clara. And I really like that, how you have a character being the companion to the companion, <laughs> which is really fun. Um, and obviously, uh, what I think is really interesting is that Rigsy barely meets the Doctor in this episode. You know, he only really sees the Doctor once or twice and at the end. Um, so for him, the Doctor is Clara and his understanding of the Doctor comes from Clara, which I think is fascinating. And obviously you see that uh, in Face the Raven as well. This character who is very much seeing a different kind of Doctor, I suppose. Um, and obviously there's like a... I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going <laughs> to... I'll talk all day if you let me, but... Um, uh, the scene that I absolutely uh, always point out in this episode that I absolutely love is the train scene um, where uh, Rigsy uh, goes to commandeer the train, uh, which they have to crash in order to break through uh, the tunnel. Um, and uh, you really see kind of Clara's take on being the doctor in that scene. You see that kind of nonchalant, what the hell are you doing? Uh, and this very kind of, oh, well, I'll always remember you, this kind of nonchalant, sarcastic uh, response to Rigsy, like laying down his life for everyone else. Um, and then obviously she has that trick of using her hairband um, and then she grabs him by the hand and they run off. And I, I remember watching that at the time when it aired and thinking, this is kind of like, if you took this scene in isolation, that would be, you could easily just mistake Clara for the Doctor um, if you just showed that to someone in isolation. And that was so exciting for me because obviously this was way before Jodie Whittaker was cast. Um, so it was, for me, I think this episode really sums up, it's kind of the first unofficial female Doctor episode. Um, and that's really exciting because not only does it take... Uh, have a character in the Doctor's role, but it takes everything that comes with the Doctor's role, not just the quirks, the uh, the TARDIS or the screwdriver, but the the pragmatism, the darker elements, the complexity, and it shows how uh, the Doctor, you know, is a such a rich and rounded character. And seeing that embodied through Clara as well was just so exciting to me. <laughs> but anyway, I've talked enough about this. <laughs> No, it's interesting what you say about it, like, being like, for you, it's the first, like, kind of, like, instinct of, like, a female doctor, but, you know, I think for some of us old school fans, you know, we can, like, happily watch The Horns of Naimon, where, you know, Romana effectively takes on the doctor's role, whilst Tom Baker pisses around with, uh, <laughs> you know, crowd and, like, trying to, like, chew the scenery, you know, I, that that train scene is very pivotal, you know. Where and it's almost like you say, it's the doctor's lines that she's effectively she's talking like the doctor. You know, well, you know, you can sacrifice your life, but I know I'll look at that hairband and I'll, you know, I'll remember you. You know, I might do, you know, I might feel sad occasionally, but you know, if you want to sacrifice your life, it's fine. Or we could just do this, which is the clever thing to do. Mm-hmm. Nice little Easter egg that I I noticed. I don't think I noticed it on broadcast, but the the number on the train, the first one that obviously they you try to use as a 
um, a ram against the boneless has the designation A113, which is a very, very famous Easter egg, that Pixar animation. Oh, yeah. And it's uh, based off, I think, the the lecture hall where a lot of animators learn their craft in the University of California. That's the thing, and it's, it's in virtually every single Pixar film, I think, as well as some others. So, um, obviously, whoever designed and animated that sequence is obviously a bit of a, a fan mm-hmm. of Pixar's work. So then, before the finale, we've got In the Forest of the Night. Uh, so this one, um, I remember when the day this was broadcast, NASA actually reported giant sunspot eruptions on the sun. It was one of those things that was kind of a, a nice little bit of uh, inadvertent um, tie-in with, with the story. Um, and I think watching it this time, um, hasn't it got added resonance for the for the pandemic where the world has suddenly changed, everyone's been told to stay at home, you can't get around as easily and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, yeah, kind of... Um, Kind of really felt different watching it this time because it was uh, almost like a parallel to that. Yeah, um, I find it a lot more interesting watching it this time around than what I did uh, on broadcast. I thought I kind of like, I, I don't know, I, it didn't really engage me uh, when uh, it was first broadcast. But like you say, it shares a lot of the same kind of like concepts and themes as the Kill the Moon. Mm-hmm. And he's very, very similar in the storyline with the same kind of like... Um, you know, follow through at the end, uh, but with the role reversal. So um, I think it's one of those episodes that I think could have perhaps benefited from being a bit longer, perhaps a two-parter, you know, to show more of the impact of uh, obviously the trees and, you you know, growing around the world and stuff and perhaps like build a bit more up of, of the, the struggles that they had it, it, it seems a bit curt and, and all too neatly wrapped up in the 45 mm-hmm. minutes that it's got um, you know I think it's, it's one of those I think probably isn't regarded as well as it is again I think because of that ending which is a derived uh, you know the girl just appears out of the <laughs> <laughs> the bush or, or whatever you want to describe the magic like um, <laughs> fairies or whatever brings her back. Um, but, yeah, I think it could have easily benefited from being a lot longer to mm-hmm. explore the concepts a lot better. Yeah, it almost feels a bit like it could have done with, like, a kind of Centauri stratagem, Poison Sky kind of thing, because that was another one where it was very a big global issue. Um, and that, I mean, whatever the faults of that episode, at least they had a lot of room to breathe with the, with the concept, because it was a big concept. Uh, when you go for these big global influencing stories, you kind of need to have that extra breathing space, I think, in a lot of cases. Not always, but uh, yeah, this story, um, it's not well loved. Um, and I'm predictably one of the people who really, really likes it. Um, I think because bar the ending, which is just incredibly amusing, and I, I don't think it's a surprise that the th- thing people were talking most about after this episode I was aired was the next time trailer for the finale, which was just, <laughs> it blew everyone's minds and everyone's buzzing about that. Um, but that ending is very weird and uh, kind of cheesy and um, uh, contrived. Um, I think what really, what I really love about this episode is that 
Uh, I think I always go into it from the lens of it's very much Doctor Who as a children's fairy tale, as a children's storybook. And it kind of has the same logic and the same rules. Again, science doesn't really factor into it, except in a very kind of vague sort of way. It's more about uh, the emotion, the, the seeing it through a child's eyes. And I know people uh, don't always love it when child stars are in Doctor Who. Um, and obviously... Uh, child actors can be a bit hit and miss but I I personally find the children really fun in this episode um especially uh the one who voices Peppa Pig uh I don't know if you know that the girl who plays Ruby the girl with the plaits uh who's very kind of loud and points things out uh she it actually voiced Peppa Pig um, and uh, I, a funny fact that I, that I always smile at is that Jenna Coleman found this so amusing that she would just make the actress say things in Peppa Pig's voice, <laughs> like on set. Uh, and she was just absolutely, just found it hilarious. Um, but anyway, um, I, I really like the way this episode is, is very centred on children and seeing the world through a child's eyes. Um and I love the way the score and the direction kind of feeds into that. Um, I, I love the way uh, it, it has that kind of fairy tale feel, the tiger in the woods, um, things like that. Um, and I really, really love the character stuff in this episode as well, which I think is very underrated. And it's why, for all of its faults, I could never call this uh, even a mediocre episode, although I, I think... I totally understand people who do and people who don't like it, but I love the stuff with Clara and Danny and the Doctor in this. Um, I love the way uh, you see uh, Danny, you know, catch on pretty quickly that Clara's been lying to him this whole time. Uh, I love the way Clara is so excited that she's found a mystery that the Doctor probably doesn't know about and she rings him up (laughs) and then he's already like, you know, he's already seen it and she's really bummed out by that. Um, And I love that conversation where Clara is essentially, again, it's that massive role reversal of Clara essentially saying, I'm going to get the Doctor out of this place for his safety. Um, you know, which is the kind of thing he did in Bad Wolf where he sent Rose away or to Clara in Time of the Doctor where he sent her away for her own safety. She's basically doing that to him uh, and she tricks him into doing that again. So there's that massive subversion of her um, turning and doing that on the Doctor, which is something he would normally do to his companion. Um, And I love that scene where she's like, I don't want to be the last of my kind. I would rather, you know, die with my people with other human beings and face that reality which obviously is very resonant for the doctor um and uh you have the doctor repeat Clara's words back to her saying you know this is my world this is I breathe your air I walk your earth um and you see how he's grown even in the few episodes since kill the moon um so there's a lot to dissect from that and I I love uh kind of the ending where um you know, Clara is just so excited about seeing uh, this space event and Danny just wants to stay where he is. And like we talked about with the caretaker section, uh, you really see that different point of view and the way Danny is happy with what's right in front of him. Uh, but that's never quite enough to satisfy Clara, which is really interesting. I remember when when uh, I watched this one when it went out and I was fairly convinced it was a sequel to The Doctor, The Widow and The Wardrobe because you've got the sort of the you know, the trees and there's the sparkly lights and things like that. And um, the way it could only 
communicate with a female and things. Um, and I thought, what a weird um, thing to bring, <laughs> to bring back into a sequel to. Um, but obviously, it's, it didn't actually have anything to do with it in the end. It's just just got similar sort of um, setup. Um, but it made me think because um, in the arc in space, the the Earth has been destroyed by solar flare activity, hasn't it? So mm. my head canon is when these trees evolve like the uh, like jade in uh, in the end of the world and they all bugger off into space uh, the earth's got no protection left and that's when the solar flares come along so they have to uh, they have to go into the arc in space at that point i do like the implication that the trees are just sentient because uh, like you said it does kind of tie into the the trees of cheem um, <laughs> I, I, I again it's one of those things that's just really just pure childhood fantasy uh, like the moon being an egg it's one of those things that's just ridiculous and it kind of makes no sense and it it transforms the entire world really uh but you you kind of it's one of the things that you just have to appreciate that it's not trying to be super realistic it's trying to be childlike and capture that kind of imagination um where it really falls short is where it goes from whimsical and childlike to kind of contrived and awkward which is obviously that that ending scene because i get what frank cultural voice is going for because uh, that is kind of the kind of resolution you would see in a children's book isn't it like oh and the leaves disappeared and the sister was there all along but in terms of the context of the episode it just feels really bemusing and out of place and kind of stupid um but it is something you can laugh about really yeah. and the wolves and the tiger are still out there as well that really- <laughs> <laughs> right so uh next up is uh the penultimate episode which is dark water um obviously a very intense episode um uh, you have so much going on there uh that incredible uh opening uh with clara and danny dying um and just everything spiraling from there uh what do you think of it jason oh it, it i remember absolutely being completely floored by that opening uh pre-credit sequence that's something that you just wasn't expected at all um you know and as much as we i think there's there's perception that new series who sometimes plays it a little bit safe with regards to killing off characters and stuff and you know there's that perception that the the classic series used to kill people off here there and everywhere especially like you know companions when that really wasn't the case so you know to have Danny die in the way that he did um, was was a huge like shock, and then obviously mm-hmm. you then see like where it goes because then that like takes you into the whole Free W Institute, and then obviously Danny's in the Never Sphere, and obviously Clara's dealing with the you know the grieving that you know that she's lost you know the love of her life, and it, there's that kind of item that she gives the doctor doesn't she with the seven mm. keys you know as in you would know, take me to rescue let, let me rescue danny um you know and then there's the a clever twist where you know the doctor goes well you know you know actually you know it's not what you think you haven't destroyed any keys and i mm. i put it on you and do you think even though uh, what's the line that he uses uh, do you think i care so little for your speech you know, even though she betrayed him, you know, the doctor now will still help his friend, you know, and, to save Danny. And I, I think that's one of the most profound and 
deepest expression of the doctor's compassion that I think is I've seen in the the new series certainly it's such a wonderful expression of who the doctor is and and how much he cares for Clara and his companions in general um but yeah I this episode is just I I don't think you could do it necessarily with any other characters than the doc that this doctor and Clara um I think it's uniquely tailored to them um and uh the reason I say that is because I think Stephen Moffat, there's a wonderful preview in the Doctor Who magazine for these episodes. And uh, because I'm doing the Untold Adventures, I have all of these quotes saved somewhere, uh, just for reference. Um, but there's a really fascinating uh, bit in the preview for this uh, two-parter where he talks about how, if you think about how the Doctor and Rose was very much a romance in a lot of ways, uh, the Doctor and Amy was very much uh, kind of Wendy and Peter Pan, you know, a, a girl and her imaginary friend or this fantastical uh, kind of boyish uh, man who takes her by the hand and leads her into this fairy tale. Whereas the Doctor and Clara's relationship is what the, the Doctor and Companion's relationship would be in the real world, what it would be like in a very realistic way. Um, and he talks about how, you know, if, if a young woman met this <laughs> impossibly old man from another planet um, and was taken on these crazy adventures where people died and, you know, you saw a lot of wonderful things, but also a lot of terrible things, what kind of thing would that turn you into? And he talked about... Um, how you very much get that sense with Clara of this kind of this darker direction um, and talking about the unhealthier aspects of the doctor and companion relationship um, and how it becomes kind of almost codependent. There's a lot of obsession and addiction kind of underpinning it. So although it's it's very uh, centred on love and and these characters love each other deeply and care for each other deeply, that there's still that kind of element to the doctor and Clara's relationship which isn't particularly healthy and obviously Hellbent pays that off <laughs> um, but you also see this is a really good parallel to Hellbent because you see how far the Doctor will go for Clara and in this episode you see how far Clara will go uh, not for the Doctor in this case but for Danny but you know you know that she would do the same for the Doctor. She would go to the same lengths. Uh, you know, she would be willing to destroy her friendship with the Doctor, to destroy the TARDIS, to destroy uh, her own life, to destroy the universe, uh, just to bring Danny back. And that kind of shows uh, not just the depth of her grief, but also what kind of person she is that she would go to those lengths. And it shows how Clara is uniquely the person that would push the doctor to those things because they don't necessarily temper that in each other. They tend to snowball it in each other. Um, so I love, I love how that volcano scene really kind of encapsulates that. You see this kind of power play, this struggle going on between them. You see, and, and obviously we don't know that the doctor, uh, has foreseen what was going to happen in the moment. You don't know what the outcome is going to be, who's going to win, basically, because it's it's all about which one of them is going to take control, and they're kind of neck and neck. Um, and yeah, it's 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 just such a I think unique um, take on the Doctor Companion relationship, and it's why this series is my favourite because it's just so 
complex and it's not afraid to really delve into those questions. Because uh, I think a really interesting um, kind of parallel to this is the Doctrine Rose. Um, and um, obviously you had the romantic element, but you still have, you also had that kind of hint of it maybe not being totally healthy in series two. Um, you see how Rose has become a little bit detached um, and she's become kind of more uh, suited to the doctor's life necessarily than uh, normal life. And you have that conversation with Jackie Tyler where she's like, um, you know, you look like him. You're just going to keep on changing until you, you won't even recognise yourself, you won't even look human anymore. And um, I really think they didn't quite fully follow through with that, with Rose. I think it was more teased with. Um, although, obviously, you say a step into the Doctor role, you don't really have that same look at the darker sides of it, I don't think, um, because that's really her ex-episode. But this episode, obviously, kind of is Stephen Moffat taking that concept and kind of take it to its natural conclusion. Um and you see just what kind of person uh, a character who travels with the Doctor could end up being. Um, and I think that's really fascinating and interesting, but also very redemptive because you still have that uh, hope and you have the Doctor, like I said, uh, like you said, kind of forgiving Clara, even after everything that she might have done or could have done or was prepared to do, he would always forgive her, which I think is just, it's, it's such a lovely scene. Yeah, because I, I think uh, the way it's played by Capaldi as well is very, very touching. And it, if you compare it to probably other doctors, probably you pro- probably get, still get the doctor helping uh, his companion if something had happened earlier like that earlier on in the series. But you would probably would have got stupid ape rant off the ninth doctor before he then said, "I'm going to help you," or you would have got like a similar kind of like rant or 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 dressing down from the 10th Doctor before then acknowledging, mm-hmm. I'll help you as well. But but here, uh, the 12th Doctor doesn't do that. He just like just says, look, you know, do you, you know, I'll help you. You know, even though mm-hmm. you've been, I will help you. It's that acceptance of that. And I think that, that shows the progression of the character for, like, from deep breath through to the, this final story in, in the season. I really like how the Doctor's surprised that Clara's surprised, you know, because he, he casually says, go tell, and she's like, you know, fair enough, <laughs> after what I've just done. And he's like, wait, where are you going? We're, we're going to help Danny. Like, he doesn't even, there isn't even a question in his mind of doing that, which I think is just so lovely. And like you said, there's no, uh, there's there's kind of a, a hurt and a betrayal there. You can see it in how he plays it, but there's no visceral anger. And I think it's because you can, the Doctor understands these characters understand each other so well and the Doctor has been there before. He's lost people he's loved before and he's gone to great lengths, you know, and to to try and uh, respond to his grief. And I, I love that kind of mutual respect and understanding uh, for each other in that scene. I really love the, the humour in this. After the bleak, bleak opening of it, um, you know, Danny... You know, such a such a kind of brutal way to die. Um, not like a sci-fi, you know, zapped and and disappears or anything like, um, you know, like Osgood is in in the second part. There's something really kind of brutal and final about it. In the same way, like Pete getting killed in Father's Day, or the alternative Donna gets run over and, and turned left. You know, it's it's there's a sort of grim finality to it, and then it obviously just goes into some really dark 
dark territory with mm. the um, cremations and things. But it's so funny as well that it that it, it which absolutely needs um, to, uh, to to stop it just becoming this um, this really dark story. And the bit where the doctor and Missy first meet is just um, just laugh out loud funny. Mm-hmm. I love her performance and, and the way she totally wrong foots the doctor right from the off. Um, with all that stuff about uh, when he says uh, who's in charge and she's like I'm in charge and uh, she, yeah and then she goes Doctor Chang and all that. it's uh, just just absolutely brilliant and the clues that you notice that it's a Cybermen uh, on a on subsequent viewing so obviously there's, there's the little kind of teardrop eye logo that, that it doesn't really fully click until you've got the double doors that that swing closed yeah. and mm-hmm. looks like a face. But early on, when they see all the apparent skeletons in the water tanks, uh, and he says it, it's a tomb, and then it shows you that they're all stacked up like the tomb mm-hmm. on Telos in Tomb of the Cybermen, um, which I, you know, I hadn't um, I hadn't clicked before. Um, there's there's loads of nice little clues like that that you're going to pick up on uh, in subsequent viewings. Yeah, um, because that, you, the teardrop logo was also seen in a couple of earlier scenes. I think it's in the caretaker with the the policeman and Chris Addison, where he's talking about, "Oh, I didn't survive, did I?" And in the background, you can see one of the windows. But again, it's something so just there in the background that you don't click mm-hmm. until actually you see those double doors close, and you go, "Ah, there you go." And I remember this this episode got quite a bit of um, complaints about it, didn't it? About the yeah. whole mission effect and the, the talking of the dead, which is, is, when you think about it, it's quite a grim thing, but then it's offset with that humour, like you said, you know, we've got a burner in room yeah. 12. <laughs> can't help but like just laugh at that line and how it's delivered by Addison, who's a good comedian. He's fantastic, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to um, the the thick of it, isn't there? With um, obviously Chris Addison worked with Peter Capaldi in that series, but um, I think when he shows the psychic paper to somebody, he says, "Oh, well, you know, there's a lot of swearing on the psychic paper." And he says, "Oh, I've got anger issues." <laughs> and I, I thought that's surely a thick of it gag that they yeah. just that. I think it's interesting that they sort of not really explicitly, but they, you know, like in, in the past in Doctor Who, they've they've looked at like you know egyptian gods and stuff with there uh, with pyramids of mars and like you know kind of the greek gods and loch ness monster and, and different kind of mythologies loch ness monster is not a good example but different mythologies and here it's kind of like christian mythology really isn't it of, of heaven and stuff and there's um there's a point in he's in the caretaker isn't it where um missy's kind of referred to as god i think the, the police officer looks out um of the window and he, he murmurs oh my god and, and seb looks at missing mm-hmm. sorry she's a bit busy today or something like that yeah so it is like you know the whole the whole concept of, of this uh you know has an alien um underpinning uh you know like it does with the sirens and the um mm-hmm. uh, and the different stuff in in, in the classic series um, and what I really like is the, is the end of Dark Water is when you find out that Missy's a time lady and she says, you're the, the one that you abandoned and, and you're not really thinking master yet and you're thinking about which time ladies have been? Is it been? Is it Susan? Is it the Rani? Is it Romana? Because, <laughs> uh, you know, in some ways it, you could read it that they were all left somewhere that they had to sort of find their way back from. Uh, and it's only when Missy says about the key strategic weakness of the human race that I kind of clicked and thought, that's like the master in Terror of the Autons talking mm-hmm. about the the one basic weakness uh, of the human race, um, and it, it kind of got it just just before she said, 
I can't keep calling myself the master. But uh, yeah, giving it that room for, for like classic series fans to speculate yeah. uh, is really fun because you're thinking, well, is Missy short for mistress? Because that's what K9 used to call Romana. You know, it's, uh, it's really cool. It's it's such a well-paced episode, I think, and the reveal is just, it's so well, you have that real, uh, it's one of my favourite cliffhangers because you have that just tightening of the screw, that whole episode going on, because um, obviously you start off with Clara on the phone to Danny and you feel her dread where suddenly this just random lady picks up and you the penny drops and you have that, so you start off with that and then you have the intensity of the a volcano scene and then from there you just don't quite know what's going on with this 3W place, you don't know what's going to happen to Danny um so you have that underlying sense of dread just running through that whole episode um and then it just builds and builds and builds and like you say you have Missy kind of throwing these hints around um and then obviously the getting out into St Paul's um which is such a cool image and um the pacing of the reveal is so well done and the way it's juxtaposed uh, I mean all good I love the cliffhangers where like each of the characters is facing some sort of peril um, and it's kind of unique. So Clara's just discovered she's in the room with the Cyberman. Uh, Danny is about to delete his emotions and then obviously you have the Doctor realising that Missy's the master. Um, I don't know, you might have heard about this fact. Um, when they recorded, when they filmed that scene uh, outside of St Paul's, uh, Michelle Gomez originally said she was the Rani, uh, just to throw onlookers off. Right. <laughs> um, but obviously they, they kept the take where she said she was the master, obviously, but they recorded one or they at least did a take uh, where she said she was the Rani, uh, just to, you know, throw people off the scent, uh, which I think is quite fun. Brilliant. But for once it didn't leak out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So we're moving on to Death in Heaven then, uh, which obviously starts with, um, again, like we said, like, you know, the doc, uh, the Clara taking on, like, the Doctor mantle in Flatline, and then we've got Clara is the Doctor in the title sequence. I, um, yeah, I, 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 I think that's just such a funny kind of uh, wink, uh, intentionally pissing off certain fans uh decision uh which you you know that Stephen Moffat um I don't know uh he can't necessarily have foreseen the Clara Who backlash that series eight got because uh, I remember at the time uh, I think it was like by the time we got to like kill the moon flatline people were really complaining about Clara saying she was too prominent and which I kind of think is unfair because the Peter gets so much good material in this series. Although obviously there's a lot of character focus on Clara, I, I wouldn't say uh, bar episodes like say Flatline and Kill the Moon uh, that it's any more focused on her than it is on um, you know say Rose in series one. Um, yeah. But I, I, I and I do get it because she. But I, I also at the same time think you know all of the focus on her is used as a means to develop the 12th Doctor as well. It's very much a kind of, um, you can actually look at each of the episodes in Series 8, and I think each one has a certain kind of character emphasis. So Deep Breath is kind of Clara-oriented, Into the Daleks more uh, 12th Doctor-oriented, um, and it, they kind of, I think, share out the the character focus. Um, 
and I think it's so yeah I, I don't think Stephen Moffat was necessarily I don't think it was that the decision to make that uh, pre-titles um, obviously he couldn't have foreseen that but at the same time I really do like how he uses it to kind of pay off the Clara as the Doctor arc that they were going for in this series um, and I really like the touch of her getting top billing and having her eyes in the titles which is just a fun little kind of joke and a wink and a nod Watching it this time makes me think of One Division as well. Um, I, I don't know if you've seen that, Ruth, but the mm-hmm. okay, uh, yeah. you know the way that like um, Agnes um, uh, Agatha gets gets her own um, t- little title <laughs> sequence thing, like the Agatha all along thing. Yeah, um, it, it reminds me. It really reminded me of that. The you know they're the, the giving a character power by by having their own little mm-hmm. version of the theme tune or the titles or something. It's uh, it was cool. And um, although obviously it's just a, it's kind of just, it's, it's a little plot thread that's kind of dropped quite early. I, I think it's very much, like I said, it's a payoff for all of the Clara's, the Doctor stuff. But also I think it's a really nice bit of foreshadowing for her ending in Hellbent. Uh, you know, that very much the taking on the Doctor's mantle, uh, taking on the, having her own TARDIS, her own companion, running away from Gallifrey. I like how... Uh, you can tell that Stephen Moffat very much had that kind of journey in mind for her character, and I like how that is a little nod to it. But I like how he also uses it um, as a way of showing how well Clara knows the Doctor as well. Uh, you see her spout all of these facts, you know, about his um, his Doctor and about even, you know, Jenny from uh, the Doctor's daughter. She references that. Mm-hmm. Um and, and, you know, talk about having uh, type 40 TARDIS and things like that. Um, I really like that scene because it, it shows that she's a really good liar. <laughs> um, I, I think the only reason she fails is because Danny steps in. Um, and uh, and also that she knows the Doctor so well. Um, and you really see how much these characters ha- have come to know and understand each other. And there's that running theme going on. Um but yeah, and then obviously a lot to talk about with uh, with the Doctor and Missy in this episode as well, which is really really fun. I mean, Missy's just a riot. <laughs> the thing with Missy is she's she's kind of really deliriously evil, and um, she takes all this delight in killing, and it she kind of makes you complicit because you're, you're laughing along, which is all kind of <laughs> her accents and her voices and the stuff she's saying, but she's um, she's doing like horrific things. Yeah, and obviously when she. Um kills Os- Osgood like he was like oh no he's like you know, I liked Osgood she was great <laughs> but obviously then that's the neatly like uh, twisted around for series 9 as well I think too because I think and I think Moffat did that deliberately because there was such a reaction to killing off <laughs> but that he, he decided to like retcon that uh, in the Zygon 2 parter um, but yeah she, she, she plays the role with such a relished she um, and you know it's the kind of thing that Anthony Ainley always used to get like um, you know um, lambasted for playing it over the top yeah where when you do the the, the gender swap with it um, it frees up the actor to bring a new take to that mm-hmm. particular character doesn't it yeah and um, I just like you said she's just Every moment she's on screen, no matter what she's doing, she's just so much fun. Uh, and there's so many little like quirks to her character. The mist, I, I always think of the Mary Poppins thing where she just appears like floating down yeah. from an umbrella uh, when she's just singing "Hey Missy, you're so fine" to herself. Uh, little things like that, and she wants them to 
drop a bomb on Belgium if they're not even yeah. French. So there's just <laughs> there's just a lot of really uh, just fun lines from her, and Michelle Gomez is just perfect like I, I one of my absolute favorite performances in Doctor Who like every second she's playing Missy uh you can just tell she's having a ton of fun and you're having a ton of fun watching her um and I, I do like that they even though she is very much uh kind of almost pantomime villainy in this episode um they still have that sense of kind of uh pathos towards the end to her character and the kind of tragedy of the Doctor and the Master's friendship at the end because uh, you have that revelation where all of this she was doing to impress the Doctor to to get him on her side um, and that has obviously a, a really wider context when you look at the rest of the 12th Doctor's era because you have the, the revelation that she um, uh, introduced the Doctor and Clara to kind of bring the Doctor around to her point of view by pairing him with someone who would kind of enhance the most destructive tendencies that he had um and uh obviously that leads to hell ben and uh and things there and the resolution of the doctor and clara's relationship um and then you have obviously the doctor falls um and the revelation that uh i suppose the sim master uh probably got his idea for the cyberman army from that episode whether consciously or not um so because there's that kind of loop isn't there you have the sim master becoming Missy who then goes on to be in Death in Heaven who then goes on to be in the Doctor Fool so it's this kind of weird <laughs> closed loop going on which is quite fun yeah I hadn't thought about that before um what it reminded me of because it's not that long since I watched Planet of Evil and um uh, when Morelli's killed uh the character Vashinsky says um he's joined the greatest army of them all um oh. And it kind of makes me think, God, yeah, the, the, about the dead being the greatest army of them all. Is that maybe something that like Stephen Moffat uh, tucked away in his mind somewhere um, and was a bit of an inspiration for this? Um, so, yeah, it probably isn't, but it's just something that kind of stuck out for me. I haven't watched it, you know, since since watching this. Um, I felt like some, some James Bond uh, kind of imagery and stuff in this one as well. Obviously, like you've got the... Um, the free fall without a parachute um he's moonraker and golden eye uh when sanjeev Bhaskar's character um gets sucked out of the plane window in a general's uniform that's like the way that goldfinger's killed um and then the doctor and clara's farewell they say never again uh, which is what sean connery said when he finished filming diamonds are forever and that's why his uh, his final uh, little non-eon bond film is called never say never again so just that's another fun Nice little spot there. Uh, uh, yeah, and it kind of like um, it, it, there's a few more Bond moments in the uh, is it the Zygon two parter as well, which you uh, the Union Jack uh, parachute and stuff, don't you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, this is a, the, the, this pair of episodes is a, a really good directorial debut for the for the show anyway from uh, American director Rachel Talalay, who um, yeah. famous for directing. Um, you know, a couple of uh, Nightmare on Elm Street films uh, and Tank Girl, and she'd go on to direct every single Capaldi finale uh, after this one. Yeah, I mean, that that pair, that dynamic of Stephen Moffat, Rachel Tarley and Peter Capaldi is just flawless, in my opinion. Like, yeah. it's such a, a coming together of these different creative minds, and they work so well together. I think every single story that those three have done together has been 
incredible. Um, and, you know, Talali is such an effective and subtle uh, and evocative director and she always brings out the very best in her actors as well like the performances in her episodes are just you know incredible and obviously a lot of that comes from Peter but uh you know Jenna Coleman's amazing in this two-parter uh she's amazing in Hellbent uh obviously Paul McKee is an amazing in uh The World Enough and Time and The Doctor Falls um and every time these guys are together you, you know you're going to get something really special um and I can definitely see why Stephen Moffat just kept bringing Rachel back you know each finale um because it's you know, there's such a a wonderful visual style. There's such a wonderful kind of sense to to these episodes. Yeah, we get a closure of the the whole "Am I a good man?" Uh, story mm-hmm. arc, don't we? With the Doctor accepting that, you know, he 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 isn't this all powerful person. He's just he's just um, an idiot in, in a in a police box who travels here and there, who wants to help out as much as possible. You know, and by obviously like coming to that reasoning as well that you know he ref- he's refusing Missy's offer of of the the cyber army, you know because he, he wouldn't know what to do with it, you know in the end would he? Yeah, yeah. and it it really culminates that theme of soldiers so well um, because you have all of that because uh, like like you said it's the ultimate army uh, that he's gifted at the end after all of this talk of of soldiers and him being an officer and you kind of see him reject that in a which is is really interesting. Um, but he also respects Danny, you know. He as much as he's rejecting the kind of um, I suppose, violent and militaristic side. Uh, he respects Danny's sense of honour and sacrifice. Um, so it's really kind of a really nice resolution to that, I think, and seeing his respect for Danny uh, and um, their characters kind of come to a resolution uh, is really nice. And and Danny being the one to kind of save the world, I think it's a really uh, important move because it gives his character a resolution and agency while still giving the Doctor and Clara, you know, a combination for the series. Yeah, and those final scenes are just brilliantly played by all four actors, uh, you know, in, in that, that graveyard, which I believe is the same graveyard that was used for angels in manhattan wasn't it ah, right. yeah yeah it's the same location but obviously with, without the new york skyline right. like <laughs> so where does where does everybody lie with the cyber break then um i mean I, at the time i was still i hadn't really delved into classic who so i i obviously that went over my head at the time um but you know having you know, gotten to know the Brigadier's character more and um, and watched the episode since. I, I don't know. I, I, I think it's a nice nodding concept, but at the same time, it is kind of a bit of a weird... I don't, I, I don't really know what to make of it still, to be honest. I don't know about you guys. For me, I can't, I can't say it really bothers me. I feel like it's a nice nod to the character. What I couldn't understand at the time was why that bothered people. Um, but after Roger Delgado's death, the master turn, turning up as a desiccated, rotting, yeah. <laughs> kind of undead oh. corpse isn't seen as, uh, you know, on the same lines. It's just like, oh, because that's in the past and it's classic here, it's kind of okay. But because, you know, this is a new take on a classic character, it's, it's somehow disrespectful. Um, yeah, I don't, I, 
yeah, I don't know why one's okay and one isn't, but um, <laughs> yeah, and it's not like I think it was it was you know it wasn't like he was going to keep turning up and <laughs> as a cyber brigadier and talking or anything. I think that was like a farewell to him that you know he didn't mm. really get on screen. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm kind of fine with it. I'm awaiting the big finish spin-off as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> it is uh, it is funny to think about all the other uh, dead characters that might. I remember uh, Steve Moffat in a Q and A for Doctor Who magazine wrote a scene of Cyber Amy and Rory, <laughs> and it was really funny. Um, but I mean, I, I I know this episode gets a lot of flack for the whole death storyline but it's very much one of those things that you kind of can just compartmentalize to the series that it takes but it's, it's not like you're thinking every time a character now dies in Doc 2 that they've gone to the nether sphere because it's very much isolated within missy's own plan and um it's the same with the whole kind of the death of conscious cremation thing it's not supposed to be a universal truth of doctor who it's it's very much implied that missy it's just part of her evil plan it's not like a universal concept um but obviously you know at the time that it aired and in the context that it aired I can understand why it caused a lot of uh kind of upset uh, understandably so but you know it's 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 enough of a thing that you just kind of isolate it to the story and and to Missy's plot um and I think in that regard it works really well um and I, I, I do like how it uses the, like Danny, um, I, I think it's one of the most uh, harrowing uses of the Cybermen, uh, pre-Bill Potts uh, in the Doctor Falls, because obviously that's even more so, but um, seeing the real pain in Danny's face uh, and the fact that his emotional inhibitor hasn't been turned off. Um, and it, it reminds me, obviously, of that scene in... Um, uh, Age of Steel, I think it is, the two-parter in series two where uh, the Doctor uh, removes the emotional inhibitor on one of the Cybermen and it's a woman who's about to be married. Um, and that's one of the most harrowing scenes of the Cybermen. So you kind of see that expanded on here um, and you see Clara's distress and I think it's just, it's really, really harrowing. Because um, the, the, the sort of implants look so painful, don't they? Where mm. it's, it's gone into his skin, it, it, it looks so... Uh, so horrific, yeah. And obviously, you've got the bittersweet ending then, haven't you? Of obviously, uh, both the Doctor and Clara lying to each other, mm-hmm. you know, and then going their separate ways, which I thought was a, quite a brave uh, decision to like uh, end the series uh, like that. Mm-hmm. And I, it says so much about these characters, I think. Um, because again it's a very understated kind of parting um there's there's no kind of big tears or big emotional booming score or anything it's just Clara's theme playing very lightly um in the background um and you know you you have these characters who are just uh, Stephen Moffat's described it saying you have these two characters who are just convinced they know what's best for the other person and you see them so much as mirrors of each other in that scene they both lie to each other uh, they both hug each other while having all of this unsaid stuff kind of hovering between them um and uh, yeah, I think it's a, a wonderfully understated and very kind of a perfect way to culminate this series, I think, and these characters and seeing them basically sacrifice everything for each other. Because without Danny, Clara doesn't really have much on Earth. Um, I mean, we see in Last Christmas that she spent six months 
in a very dark place mentally um and she's kind of just given up at that point in that episode um and the doctor obviously talked about his big quest to find Gallifrey which doesn't even uh he could, didn't even find in the end you see him you know hitting the TARDIS and his distraught so um yeah it's it, it's a really perfect ending to the series I think although I'm very glad that it wasn't where we ended yeah. <laughs> because you know I I love uh, Last Christmas and I love uh series nine definitely yeah, it'd have been a, a bleak farewell to Clara, mm. wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, <laughs> uh, I just uh, really love this series. <laughs> yeah, it's it's so kind of rich and textured, and, mm. and there's a lot of depth to it, isn't it? So it's brilliant. It's been brilliant talking it through with you guys. Oh, likewise. I really enjoyed that. Um, it's, been an epic episode uh so thank, thank you to uh, to everyone that's uh, that's listened all the way through uh see this is what happens when you have me talking about clara it's, <laughs> it's always gonna expand your runtime <laughs> well wait the series nine steelbook uh, podcast <laughs> yeah well hopefully they're going to re-release that because it was like the first one to come out and um it, it sold out yeah the alice sang uh, version uh, yeah, did for series nine and ten yeah i've got those two versions yeah so if they do re-release it obviously i probably won't be picking up those steel books because i've already got yeah. the, the first release of steel books but then again if the artwork's nice i might like <laughs> we always do as doctor who fans yeah <laughs> i yeah that nature i didn't get it the first time so i'm hoping for a re-release so uh, so so fingers crossed we'll be back here in a few months and uh, yes I'll put links in the show notes to where we can find you guys on Twitter and, and find your other projects. Mm-hmm. Um, but thank you very much. Uh, that was uh, that was really good fun, really interesting chat. And uh, thank you very much for listening at home. Goodbye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.